of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to esteemed mathematician, author and presenter, Rob Easterway. And it is a cracker. But just before we dive into that, a quick word from our sponsors. Cue the fancy music. episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is kindly sponsored by White Rose Maths. Now, as mentioned in previous sponsor slots, despite coming from the wrong side of the Pennines, I cannot help but love White Rose Maths for their top quality mathematical resources. And for the new academic year, they are back with a bang. So here's a question for you. Are you looking for ways to get the following elements into your regular classroom practice? Bar modelling, concrete pictorial abstract, mathematical talk, variation, and generally getting students to think a bit deeper. If, like me, your answer is yes please, then you should check out the White Rose Maths Purposeful Practice Worksheets. They are going down a storm already with maths teachers around the country. People are loving the fact that the questions are top quality and they find it the perfect complement to the White Rose Maths Free Schemes of Learning. Now, these purposeful practice worksheets are available from year one to year eight and cost £99 for 12 months access. Not a penny more. As listeners will know, so many of the high quality resources from White Rose Maths, including their excellent schemes of work, are completely free. So to me, this seems like a small price to pay to help support their work whilst also giving you access to some top quality materials. And if that wasn't enough, then there are the online CPD opportunities. With many teachers finding it so hard to get out of school to courses these days, White Rose Maths have acted upon many requests to offer a digital version of their popular training courses. As a starter, they have digitised their popular bar modelling training so that schools can have access to the training at a time that suits them. The bar modelling training takes people on a journey from the basics to some key stage three and four topics. Now, we had this training at our school last summer and it was excellent. Videos are short, professional and engaging and can be watched collectively as a maths team or teachers across the school can self-study and progress at their own pace. So if you haven't had the opportunity to come face to face with White Rose Maths training or you've not really dabbled in much bar modelling, now you've got another option. To find out more about these resources and the online training, head over to the White Rose Maths website. That's whiterosemaths.com. White Rose Maths continuing to give people from Yorkshire a good name. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out more about the sponsor packages available. But back 
to today's episode with Rob Easterway. Now, I've been aware of Rob's work ever since I first started teaching. Indeed, if I look behind me now, I've got many of Rob's books on my bookshelf. He writes in such an engaging, entertaining and informative way that stimulate me both as a mathematician, but also provide plenty of fascinating fodder that I can use in the classroom. Rob is also one of the people behind the wonderful Maths Inspiration, which offers young students a glimpse into the role of maths in the wider world through a series of fun, informative live shows. And if all that wasn't enough, Rob is a prolific puzzle writer, although he would prefer you to call him a puzzle compiler, as we'll discuss later on. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the following things and plenty more besides. Rob describes his incredibly varied career and how he ended up writing maths books and inspiring students. What are some of Rob's favourite failures? How is many people's relationship with cricket like many people's relationship with maths? And as a public warning, the first 20 minutes of this podcast are pretty cricket heavy, but I promise there's a point and I promise we also do move on. We then delve deeper into students' perception of maths and why saying maths is fun is potentially not a good idea. Rob picks a few of his favourite anecdotes from two of his best-selling books and there's even some advice for those of you who are looking for an edge in the game of love. Woohoo! And then we turn our attention to Rob's new book, Maths on the Back of an Envelope, and use that as a stimulus to discuss the importance and complexities of estimation. As I mentioned, Rob is also a puzzle writer, so I ask how does Rob write puzzles? And he has an absolute cracker of a puzzle for you loyal listeners. And finally, Rob reflects on what he wish he knew when he first started teaching that he knows now. This was an incredibly fun interview for me to do. I was smiling throughout it and my brain was also whirling. As ever, I will reflect on my key takeaways at the end of the conversation, so stick around for that. The usual plugs before we crack on. My book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, is still available from all good and all evil bookshops. If you want to sponsor the podcast, then drop me an email. You can also support the podcast via Patreon and sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds a month. Details in the show notes or via patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. Make sure you head over to ED, the parent company of Diagnostic Questions, and sign up or check out our free math schemes of work. You can map your own scheme to ones for Year 9 to 11, created by AQA, Edexcel, OCR, and the ED GCSE ones, created by me. And for Years 1 to 8, we've got White Rose, uh, we have got AET, and there's even a lovely Year 7 scheme for those following the Maths Mastery Scheme. Finally, Joe Morgan and I are running our own conference. It's very exciting. This is called Marvellous Math. We cannot wait. We're doing one event in London at Joe's brand new fancy new school on the 29th of October and one in Trinity Academy in Halifax on the 31st of October. Tickets are £90 plus VAT, which I reckon is pretty good value for money. You get a nice lunch for that and some uh, potentially very exciting prizes. Um, over half the tickets have gone at the time of recording, so get in fast. Um, you can find the link to that in the podcast show notes page or via Joe's blog um, or on Twitter. It's marvellous maths. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce you to Rob Easterway. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will though. And as ever, I will see you on the other side.
Okay, Rob. So we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Um, I never used to have a favourite number till people kept on asking me what it was. <laughs> so one has become my favourite and it is uh, 9,376. And yeah. it's uh, it's because that number has a sort of special place in my history because it was the answer to the very first puzzle I set for New Scientist. Uh, and it's the only number uh, which when you square it, only four digit number, which when you square it, ends in itself. So 9,376 squared is 9376. Um, so it earned me 20 quid and <laughs> it's a rather quirky number and uh, it's very useful having a quirky number as a four digit uh, number because there's all sorts of situations in life when you can use it, but it's not my pin number. <laughs> well that is good now normally i can i can guess why people have favorite number seven comes up pi and all that but i didn't see that one coming that's that's <laughs> a very strong star that Rob. i love that um okay question number two then what was your favorite topic in maths as a student okay uh without doubt it was probability um which is an unusual answer probably uh but when i first encountered probability which was probably what's now year nine ten that's when we really got into it i suddenly thought this is what i love this is about games i could see immediately the connection and so if i had ever had any doubt about the playful nature of maths this was like a gift to me um and and i got it i could understand it and i could do it and i started discovering that the exam questions about probability I found quite easy and other people found them really hard. And when it came to my O level, uh, it was like the probability question would be however many marks. It would take me five minutes and um, uh, it would, uh, you know, I could get onto the, the hard stuff and have plenty of time for it. So it was a win win as a, as a topic. I'll tell you what, Rob, we're, we're, get on, we're going to get on well here because probability by far and away is, is my favourite topic. And it, does, it doesn't come up much at all. This I've asked this question probably a hundred times now on this podcast and very rarely does it come up. Um, I wonder whether, like me, you like the um, uh, counterintuitive results in probability. That always appeals to me, the, the, the surprising ones that are either far more likely than you might imagine or, or far yeah. less likely. Does that do it for you as well? It does. I, I mean, on a broad principle, counterintuitive does it for me across the board i like surprises i like getting things wrong i know a lot of people are the complete opposite but that has always been the stuff that's grabbed my attention and probability is full of it um and i'm sure we'll come up with you know we'll, we'll cross a couple of examples as we talk but uh, yeah all of that uh, it, i it just intrigues me because it's it leads you down a channel saying, why could it be that way when my intuition is telling me the opposite? Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, just in case I don't get a chance to speak to anyone else who likes probability, well, let me get this out of the way as well. The other thing I love is when doing it with kids, you can often demonstrate to them um, th these surprising results. So you, you'll come up with something and the kids will be like, no way, absolutely no chance. And then whether it's through some piece of technology or generating some dice rolls or something like that, yep. or just, just getting your hands dirty and and doing something practical you can really bring the theoretical to life and you don't off you you don't get that with all the subjects in math Let, let's put it that way w would you agree with that i would totally agree with that and uh i mean with adults you know they can be very adamant about uh, a, a probability answer say you're wrong or whatever with adults you can then say okay well the best way of uh, establishing the truth of this is to play a game to do a bet or whatever and whoever wins buys the 
you know, <laughs> gets bought a drink by the other one. And that's normally about the best way of proving with kids. They've got to know enough to be surprised. You yes. know, it's, it's like with a lot of things in life, you know, you're, it's only counterintuitive if you've got an intuition built up already <laughs> to think the opposite. So some things just don't work if they're too young. But yeah, otherwise, uh, I, yeah, I do love the reveal, but it's still you, you can reveal it. You can prove it. People still still say I don't believe it. Absolutely fantastic. Okay, fa- final speed dating question then. Um, if you weren't involved in the wonderful world of maths, Rob, what, what would you be doing? You know, that's a really because because maths goes right back in my working adult history. So you know, my first jobs out of university were mathematical modelling, working for a company called Logica, and I worked for Deloitte's. And you know, using maths to to help decision makers in all sorts of interesting fields i mean we worked with um uh the the people who produced carling back black label was it bass i think was the brewers <laughs> and there was some really famous carling black label ads in the late 80s oh, early yes. yeah yeah I bet, I bet he brings drinks carling black label um and of course they spend a lot of money on the this uh advertising and they want to know whether it actually works and the stats are very noisy you know you do an ad the next day sales spike but is that because the weather's hot or whatever so i was doing doing maths right from word uh, word go so if you really want me to say what i'd be doing if i wasn't doing anything that had maths connections then i suppose one of those sort of moments in my teens my other interest apart from puzzles and 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 recreational math stuff which i got into when i was about 16 um was making films of all things i used to do uh, there's people like nick park were a big inspiration for me doing little claymation animations and i did a couple of those very rudimentary and i made a couple of um short films on our family cine uh camera and i was i was always behind the camera i don't like being in front of cameras um <laughs> And uh, we submitted them to a program on BBC on kids TV called Screen Test. And I got a note back from them saying this was very good, but it wasn't quite good enough to get shown on TV. So had that got shown on TV, maybe just maybe I'd have headed in that direction as a career. But with YouTube now, so much talent and competition, perhaps I was better off. (laughs) the maths maths world wow are you still dabbling that at all i don't at all i mean i'm i'm uh, i i i admire the whole of filmmaking world but i that is so much my past because i see all the, the brilliant stuff there i love radio that's my voice is my thing and i, I i'd love to do more of that actually Fantastic. Super. But OK, well, you, you've kind of hinted that you've had a, a very varied and, and fascinating career um, so far well, to, to date, Rob. Will you just give us a bit of a flavour of that? So talk us through how it all started for you and uh, how you got to where you are today. OK, series of sliding door moments. <laughs> um, and uh, the first one, well, maybe not sliding door, but for what? Well, my dad pointed out to me a column in the Sunday Times when I was 15 or 16 and said, oh, you might be interested in this, it's a puzzle. And I was, I, he realised I liked that kind of thing, but I'd never, I wasn't massively into it. I got into the Sunday Times puzzle and then I started doing obsessive things like typing out the ones that they'd already <laughs> published. And my, again, my dad saw me one day and said, uh, wow, did you write this one? 
And I had to admit, no, no, I just copied it out and typed it up. <laughs> I thought, blimey, that's so embarrassing. I better, I wonder, but, you know, it gave me the idea, maybe I could actually write one, you know, dream of these things. And I was watching a cricket match on TV and some interesting numbers came up on the scoreboard. And I thought, oh, I wonder if you could ever get a total that you can divide by the number of runs the batsman scored and get, you know, get a whole number and it uses only one digit or two digits. And I discovered a property. I wrote a puzzle and to my absolute gobsmacking excitement, I got a letter back from the Sunday Times saying we'd like to publish your puzzle. I was 16, wow. I think. Wow. Uh, I know. And it, and I, it was an amazing guy who accepted it because he was very tolerant. He knew I was young. It was a pretty simplistic idea, but he said, I'll give you an opportunity. It was a guy called Victor Bryant. He was a maths lecturer at Sheffield, uh, and he did the Sunday Times column editing, I think, in his spare time, and massive opportunity. And that set up loads of things thereafter. I started doing puzzles for new scientists. I then went and did engineering as my degree, not maths, because I always liked the applied and the real-world context of maths. You know, I, I, I quite like the abstract side, but but... I could see already which way direction, which direction university maths would take me. I thought, that's not the way I want to go. And I came out of there, went into these jobs I mentioned before, working for Logica and Deloitte, doing mathematical modelling. And that was all wonderful. But my another massive sliding door moment, I um, I mean, it had its own history as to how I'd come to this place. But I had basically come across a guy called Gordon Vince who had written a computer program to simulate cricket matches. And I'd already, I'd already had a go at this, you know, a dice rolling thing and, you know, if you, a bit like the how's that dice game that I had as a kid. It was a very simplistic thing. What Gordon had done was a simulation that was so sophisticated, it said, if your score is on 49, it means you're more nervous, so you're more likely to get out, or if it's near the end of the day. I mean, it was really amazing. And I picked up on this and adapted it to work on a PC and I ran a match and it produced a cricket match that looked plausible <laughs> and um, I thought I'll write an article about this and send it into the Cricketer magazine and I'll get myself published. I was like again the height of my ambition and to my joy the Cricketer said yeah we'll publish this we'll make it the lead article and that was it that was highlight of my life that you know <laughs> lead article in the Cricketer magazine Thought nothing more about it. Was about to start working at Deloitte. I got a letter from uh, Ted Dexter, who any cricket fan will know was like the David Beckham of the 1960s. Absolutely. Wow. Iconic cricketer. And I knew him as a TV commentator, um, but his, he was dead famous, you know, in the cricket world. And he'd written to me saying, I saw your article in Cricketer. I've got this idea for doing some uh, rankings for cricketers because i'm into golf and golf has what's called the sony rankings and they're really good and they're very sophisticated and i think you're doing this would you come for lunch with me to talk about how we would do it and i you know how, how do you control your excitement and ring back and and try and sound like you know you're not gonna be on the next tube out i had to get <laughs> anyway so I, I met ted and is a wonderful guy i'm still very good friends with him and but i brought in a friend of mine gordon vince who'd done the original computer simulation because you know if you can stereotype a bit i i tend to be quite good on ideas but not necessarily so brilliant on detail sometimes and <laughs> wonderfully meticulous so it was a great great mixing of, of uh, 
uh, of abilities uh, there. And the three of us developed what is now, you know, the official world rankings of cricket. So, you know, even non-cricket fans might be aware in the news of the recent Ashes and people like Steve Smith, number one in the world, being quoted as, well, that's our mathematical model that's being used and uh, it's still used to this day. So that just opened up massive opportunities for me at Deloitte's. But in the end, the corporate world was not really for me. I was just lucky to survive for the three or four years that I did. We got taken over by Coops and Libran, and I thought, I can't cope with this any. I can't. This is just not me. So I resigned because I thought I've got other things I'd like to do. One of the things I had done in my lovely time at, at Deloitte's had been to go on a three-day course on how to do creative problem solving. I thought, can you can you learn this? Is this a a skill? And it and it turned out it was. And it was the most fantastic, life-changing course about taking real problems, often dull problems, and saying, how can we think creatively about this in a group? So I just uh, I thought, right, I'm going to do this. And so I set myself up to to run creative problem solving courses. I uh, I rang up the civil service college in Sunningdale and said, look, uh, I'm interested in running these things. I've, I've, I've done a couple, you know, with colleagues at work. Would you be interested in me coming to run a course for you? And the, the guy said, yeah, well, we'd love you. In fact, we've got a course next week. We're looking for a, another presenter. I'm going to talk about brilliant outcomes. So I kind of got into creative problem solving. Uh, as a, so this is me as a freelancer, still doing other bits in the background. Um, and, and actually, I spent about 10 years doing that with civil servants and bizarrely with graphic designers. So two very, very different worlds, different forms of creativity. Um, but I had lots of spare time, especially in the early days. And I thought someone had once said to me, um, uh, There's no one that ever explains how cricket works to people who don't get cricket. Why don't you write a book about it? And, you know, I don't know why they said that, but I thought, well, why not? And when you're faced with a diary that's blank for three weeks, <laughs> you know, it's much easier to sit down and say, you know what? Actually, I, I may as well do it. And I sat down one day and just started writing and I kind of kept going till 3 a.m., went to bed, had breakfast, started again, kept going till midnight. By the end of it, I'd got 20,000 words of a book. It was this amazing feeling. No one else had read it, and it was actually really dire. But <laughs> but it's a great feeling. And when when I was speaking to someone a few days later, they said, uh, "So what are you doing?" So well, I'm I'm writing a book, and it's a great. I mean, you you know, you've done a book, and uh, you know what it's how lovely that feeling is. But other, what a great thing to be able to say. <laughs> anyway, that book eventually uh, got published. It made me a published. Uh, author and it was called what is a googly it's still in print which is is wonderful but that opened up huge uh, possibilities in my freelance days got me involved in various things but the most significant thing which brings us sort of to where i am now is a friend of mine from my deloitte's days at a reunion in the late 90s um knew i'd done a cricket book and said why don't you and i do a maths book together like the kind of martin gardner stuff we used to talk about when at lunchtime when we worked together and i said okay his name was jeremy jeremy windham a lovely enthusiastic guy so he kind of goaded me into doing this i was quite reluctant but that book eventually a year later became why do buses come in threes i kind of 
got more and more into it. And in the end, I, I kind of ended up as the lead on it, but with Jeremy and I just sitting down brainstorming ideas. And the publisher, it's a little publisher who'd done my cricket book. They were not that, um, they'd never done a maths book before. Not, not many people had. And I remember the designer saying to his, his mate, thinking we couldn't hear, who on earth is going to buy this <laughs> about maths? And really, our aspiration was to not get remaindered. That was, that was it. Uh, and the book got published and the Daily Mail picked it up. Not often I've been thankful to the Daily Mail, but <laughs> on that occasion, and they said, we're going to do an article about it. And that, when the Daily Mail does it, or in those days, when the Daily Mail did an article, everyone is, pricks their ears up. The Sun were onto us the next day saying, we want to do an article, which didn't necessarily help book sales, but it was, <laughs> but, but also Radio 2, which is massive. Um, I went on the um, Steve Wright show. Uh, I was on Radio 5, Radio 4, talking about it. And that book, to our utter amazement, became a bestseller. Um, and in fact, it was the bestseller, number one bestseller at the Science Museum shop for five years. Wow. The only reason it stopped being the number one bestseller was because the publisher ran out of copies and they were a bit broke from their other books. <laughs> They couldn't, didn't get around to reprinting it for about five months. And when it's not in print, you can't be a number one bestseller. And that, that really hit its momentum, but it has sort of set things off. And that, and that book, I mean, it, it was a wonderful uh, time because it, 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 it suddenly, I had schools writing to me, um, saying we're really wanting people to, to explain to our kids that there's more to maths and exams and there would you come in and do a talk so i sort of cut my teeth going into schools on the back of that uh, and did um um uh you know there was also a thing called math year 2000 big government sponsored program um so i on the back of that jeremy and i did a few things and um uh and there we are and that and, and everything else of that going into schools learning how to do talks for for teenagers i was going into primary schools as well uh, separately because my nephew had asked me to do it so I, learning about the sort of fun magic stuff that that young kids like um and getting into writing books and um and really you know everything that's happened in me in, involved in maths since has come from those various strands coming coming together uh if that all makes sense wow it does and then of course the pinnacle is appearing on this podcast rob so that's why it's all, all building up to this at this moment there we are i'm not sure what i'll do next <laughs> that is inc that is incredible i'm still trying to get my head around the and we're going to talk a, a bit about cricket um in a few minutes time but the man who came up with the cricket rankings i, I did i never knew that you know in my research somehow i've, I've missed this and that well, uh, that's incredible we stay very happily we stay very low profile on this uh and uh, uh interestingly is another t tidbit from those days the um uh two uh statisticians called duck frank duckworth and uh tony lewis um have kind of were interested in what we'd done with player rankings and and it, i think it kind of nudged them towards coming up with a mathematical model for protecting against the rain uh, or what you do when it rains in a cricket match and their system the duckworth lewis system has become extremely famous they've you know got honors for it it's 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 known across the world 
but so are they, and and they get an awful lot of flack. <laughs> and uh, I am very happy that it's not the player rankings is not known as the Dexter Easterway Vince rankings or anything <laughs> else. I like just stay back, you know. Very few people ask about it anyway, so it, it's it's just you know it's a, a project that allowed me to do lots of other things. I think that's fantastic, super. Well, just before we talk a little bit more um, about cricket and weave it seamlessly into into <laughs> talking about mathematics in general, um, a question I always ask my guests around about this stage is is to um, describe a favourite failure. Now, this <laughs> could be an experience you've had with teachers, with kids, yeah. or, or or anything else. But but yeah. crucially, why did it go wrong, and what did you learn from it? Yeah. Good question. I, I could I could fill your whole podcast with mistakes <laughs> all the time. I've had some crushingly embarrassing failures and everything else. Um, I guess, so I'll give you two, if that's okay. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, first one from very early. So uh, age 17, I'm going to think. Um, it's a new scientist puzzle. It's my second one. After the 9376 one, I'm on a roll. I'm thinking <laughs> I can do anything here. My second one's another calculator puzzle. It's very contrived, very convoluted, awful, really, but got published. Um, but it turns out that the solution depended on April. No, February. I think it's February needed to have 30 days for this to work. <laughs> um, and I think I did know that February only has 28 days. But you miss these things, you know, second month and I don't know, whatever it was. I, um, uh, I made that mistake and it got published and I got this sackload of letters from angry academics um, who did the new scientist puzzle saying you've just wasted my weekend or whatever and you know if anything's going to build a bit of toughness and grit and also attention to detail uh it's an experience like that when you're very young and uh boy did that hit me hard but you know lesson lesson is don't be too hasty get your stuff checked mistakes still get through but you know uh, but also, you know, I'm into creativity and ideas are brilliant. But in many situations, an idea, it's good to have a good idea, but it does have to work. So that was that. <laughs> and I've sometimes quoted that. Um, then more recently, this was a maths inspiration show. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about maths inspiration. But this was uh, a, a show for year 11s and 12s at the Birmingham New Alexandra Theatre about seven or eight years ago. 700 people in the audience, maybe. So, you know, you've got to get things right there. And I was still in those days quite often doing the birthday paradox, which may, many, if not all of your listeners will know about. But the idea is what's the chance that you have a room of or how many people do you need to have in a room for there to be a 50 50 chance that two of them share the same birthday? And this is a counterintuitive thing where people think, oh, it's going to be 100, 200 people. And the answer turns out to be 23, only 23 people in a room uh, and there's a 50 50 chance you'll find that two of them have the same birthday but when you present this or what one way of presenting this is to do a bet with the audience now i you might have seen ben sparks doing this he does a beautiful routine on this mine was just not as good a routine but i basically did it as a mind reading thing i picked a front row about 50 in that row and i said uh, i'm going to bet that uh two of you in this in that row have the same birthday or I, I did it. I feel an energy coming from the front row. I, <laughs> the two of you now with 50 people, the odds are something like 99%. Um, 
and in the morning actually i picked the front row of upstairs and there were about 60 and it worked so i was doing the second show in the afternoon and there were probably only 45 in a row and the odds start creeping down when <laughs> um you know you've really got to set this right and the trouble with the birthday coincidence thing is as you start going along the road saying right call out your birthday 27th of july 5th of august and you keep going the, the the odds of it working do progressively get lower and if it's not worked in the first five or ten you should start being concerned because it's <laughs> left but you have to keep going to the end so i kept going right to the end there was no coincidence it had been a monumental waste of five minutes the surprise was at the wrong side because i was the one who was surprised and the audience was thinking yeah well we kind of expected that anyway uh, just just awful one of the worst talks i have ever given because a few things went wrong but with that particular thing the lesson was um just be prepared you know you can't always go into life thinking bit of positive thinking it will all work you've got to have a plan b i'm sure there's some messages in some other aspects of life uh, at the moment that that relates to but just being ready for what would you do if and in the more mundane things what would happen if the projector fails today what happens if they've all heard of this etc so it's taught me even more about planning i used to be much i used to wing it a lot more with talks than i do now and <laughs> Uh, that that was a, that was a, a key moment influencing it that's great that's great and i'm sure many teachers listening to that can can relate uh, completely to that as well particularly when you when you've got something like a big showpiece like that a hook that's going to get that's going to set up students interest for the whole of the lesson or the whole of a topic and yeah it's where you go from there that's yeah, yeah. fascinating great stuff rob and um, well I, we've already um, indulged both our passions of cricket a little bit already <laughs> in this conversation and and not wishing to enrage any listeners uh, more than we need to i just want to talk a little bit more about cricket because in our correspondence preparing for this interview um, you made a, a really interesting point drawing parallels between cricket and maths not just in terms of obviously maths is full of numbers but also in, in kind of the public's perception of, of cricket and, and mathematics can you just talk a, a little bit about that Rob if that's okay well yeah so you will have I mean a lot of maths teachers and people in the maths community like cricket for reasons of the patterns that, that, that it throws up and you know they're, they're definitely in a, in a math department where I go to a school you'll often hear people talking about the cricket but a lot of math teachers and a wide portion of the community really don't like cricket find find it completely you know total turn off and uh, the last thing you and I want is at this point anyone who's not into cricket saying you know oh okay that's it I, I don't hear the rest of this I'm not interested in that yeah, yeah. Um, and the parallel I draw is this is how a lot of people who don't like cricket react to it. They say it's boring. Uh, it's difficult to understand. It's full of arbitrary rules. And, you know, I couldn't be bothered to work all of those out. And it's like a secret code. You're somehow supposed to get it, but no one explains it to you. And you feel stupid. You're asking naive questions and getting things wrong all the time. And it seems pointless. Well, that little list of descriptors is exactly the same list that people use when talking about maths, I know so many people who are not maths people whose attitude to maths is it's boring, it's pointless, it's full of these arbitrary rules. So um, and we can forget that in what is something of a maths bubble that, you know, other people outside it are not necessarily going to 
see just because we find it exciting and brilliant that 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 will necessarily you know be their perception and so i one of the parallels i have seen between math and cricket and it's sort of reflected in my books i mean particularly what is a googly was a book written from the point of view of all the people who hate cricket to say well what are the questions they have what have they always wanted to know not what i think they want to know um, and preparing for that, I just went around asking people at parties at the time, what have you always wanted to know about cricket? And it would be things like, why do they rub the ball on their trousers? No one's ever explained that to me. Why is it going for five days and it's still a draw? I mean, and how can that be interesting? And once you know those are the, the anxieties, you've got, you're in a position to say, well, OK, I, I, that, that's really interesting. And here's why. And actually, some of these things really aren't very logical. And cricket is kind of a bit weird and that's partly why it's charming in the same way as maths is charming but but you, it may take a while for you to, to figure that out and, you, and it, it just may not be the thing for you so you know my approach to explaining cricket to people is very similar to my approach to explaining maths or anything else I'm interested in which I know you know might be things that are generally perceived as boring by other people um it's, so, it's really yeah. interesting you say say that Rob because in, in terms of just back straight back to maths teaching, I always think that the first if, if, you, if you're looking to teach maths to, to a group of students, the first thing you have to tick off is you yourself have got to be passionate about it. You've got to have an interest about mm. it. But again, like I, I love maths. I love cricket. Like, like you, I, I, lo- I love lots of things that other people think think, are, yeah, play, playing right weird. So it's one thing being passionate. But the next thing you've got to tick off on the list is you, you've got to have an empathy for, for the audience. You've, you have to be able to see things the way that they see them so you, you've got to be able to put yourself in the shoes of a of a disinterested confused yeah. low confidence potentially and um, person yeah. and then think okay all right i've got my passion so that hopefully is going to be contagious and get through to them but if i don't have this empathy at the same time then that passion's going to be wasted and if anything it's going to be counterproductive because i'm going to be getting too excited and yeah. that's going to stop me being able to communicate effectively if that makes sense i i agree with all of that and and you know in a way being enthusiastic it might just be gets you labeled as that person's just a bit weird and uh, i mean we again we might come on to this later but i have known over the years and i've probably been guilty myself at times of saying to people well maths is fun and actually telling something telling someone something is fun is pointless it is it, completely um ineffective and I, and i like to substitute in the word Instead of maths, I say, let's think of something else, like train spotting. Someone comes up to you and says, train spotting's fun. It doesn't make you think it's fun. It makes you think that person has a different view on reality from me. And unless you like train spotting, I, I happen not to be into train spotting. Um, but, um, but, but, you know, you could think of anything like that. So fun isn't something you tell people this is fun. They have to believe that, you know, figure that for themselves. They have to be enjoying it, engaged feel they're being listened to and understood lots of ways you can uh you can break in but but yes uh you can't just assert the brilliance of something that's absolutely fascinating that um i I guess it's the same with with the word easy as well right like you tell me this is easy this is straightforward it's an absolute waste of time it has to come from them that's fascinating well i'll tell you what then because I'm, what i'm going to do i'm going to ban myself from asking you anything else about cricket after this last question okay um do you have a favorite cricket stat or fact or anything you like you like to wheel out um 
Yeah, okay. A maths one, uh, it's four or five years ago on Pi Day, Pi Approximation Day, 22nd of July, um, England finished the day with a score of 314. And uh, <laughs> just one of those little coincidences you notice, you just think, oh, it was really nice. It wasn't 313, it wasn't 3.15, it was approximately Pi 314. And that happened on that day. And it actually, that got a mention on Test Match Special. Uh, on the radio and uh, they the classic of that program they both laughed at it for being geeky and yet they couldn't help but thinking this is exactly why we have this <laughs> program and exactly the sort of thing we want to be talking about so that's that's one of my many favorites fantastic superb okay well let, let's let's do smoothly segue then into into people's perception of, of mathematics so we've I think we're both aware, whether it's from working with, with teachers, students or, or the general public, that the math does have a, have a bit of an, an image problem. And, and I wonder first, um, is this an image that's that's changed over the years? Have you witnessed any any change in people's perception of maths? Is, is maths getting cooler? Are people disliking it more? What, did you have a sense of that at all, Rob? Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I, I think maths has definitely got cooler amongst a much larger segment of the population, uh, which is not to say there isn't a, still a huge number of people who have all the same attitudes that they've they've always had. Um, but if I think back, when I really got into this world was with when buses came out, that was like a complete revelation to lots of people and never seen maths this way before. And no one else was talking about maths, really. Uh, uh, Simon Singh had just had, had books out. Um, other than that, maths was johnny ball and carol vorderman that was it um now if you think how many communicators there are out there on tv radio and on youtube things like number file which is reaching millions of people um it's bringing together lots of people who were doing this on their own didn't realize there was anyone else like out there like them uh, and you know that's built a fantastic community and off that have been drawn many other people so you know a whole class will watch a number file video now and see geeky maths that was just they would never have been exposed to before and, and enjoy it and because it's been well presented with, a, you know, a touch of uh, wit and, and, and very great clarity and everything else. You know, what YouTube has done is allow there to be 10 minute segments of brilliantly rich material that no previous medium could ever have done. You'd never have had that on telly because it's too niche. Um, or you know, little segments could only ever been a, a minute or two. You couldn't stop and rewind and watch it again. So people like James Grime and, and Matt Parker and, and many others have just reached audiences with material that was just never getting out there before. So that is a profound change. Um, on a more mundane level, I think teachers have got better at math. primary teachers in particular i think are stronger at maths now than they were when i started i just remember an example of meeting a primary teacher she just started and i showed her a puzzle about a chessboard and i said so the squares on the chessboard it's eight by eight so eight eights just waiting for her to say 64 and she said yeah what are eight eights she had no idea what eight eights were she had to get a calculator out i thought wow if you haven't if that's not off pat with a teacher then what's happening in your lessons um and i think it would be fair to say that would be far less likely to happen now i don't know maybe it still would happen but so that numeracy and you know i think the national strategy that 
what started in the early 2000s, I think, had an impact. So, you know, that's one change. We might have lost a bit too. We might have lost a lot of the eccentric uh, teachers who teach maths in their own quirky way, whatever. Many of those might have retired out and they've got much, much more regimented system you have to teach to now. Um, but broadly speaking, I'd say the there's far more access to interesting maths now for the general public and far more people, you know, be interested to see a survey, name a famous mathematician and a lot of public would say things like Hannah Fry, great role model, um, or you know Simon Singh, Marcus de Sotoy, various names would co- would come off, which it would never, and I'd still say Johnny Ball, but it, it, um, but but that was just you know it was very different. It's, it's really interesting, nice. Um, what what I've certainly found, um, and I think you're absolutely right. If if you take something like Number File, it's if you're a child and you like maths, but you're still in a, in a situation where you can't be overtly passionate about it, you mm. can you can go away at home or on your phone or whatever, and you can just watch one of these videos. You don't have to. If you think of the days before YouTube, like how, how could you how could you indulge your passion of mathematics? Like mm. you, you know, find find some event to go to on your own. Then you've got to go on the I train. I mean, you'd read, you'd read a murderous maths book, or you'd you know, exactly, yes. But you still had. To, it wasn't as easy to get That's right. in. I mean, for better or for worse, you know, watching telly is a is you know very low low effort thing but you can then get drawn in um so it reaches the parts books and other things are much less likely to reach I think. you're right and also what i find i think that there's kind of two groups that have benefited from this there's kind of the 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 kids who've always had this inner maths geek who now yeah. are, are able to access this and and again there's they're more comfortable sharing it. I've certainly, in the, the 15 years I've been teaching, I've, I've certainly c- certainly seen that, that, that kids are more willing to say, yeah, actually, uh, I, I, maths is my favourite subject, and so on and so forth. But you also get that other group of uh, kids that, you, that you've talked about for whom maths wouldn't be one of their, their favourite things but and who wouldn't dream of reading a maths book or watching mm. a maths video, but then you show them, like you say, a number file video or a clip of the lecture or something like that, yeah. and and they, they can't help but be interested because yeah. of the way these things are presented. It's it, And it's those two groups. You, you get those two groups sorted, and then you've reached this kind of tipping point where – yeah, it maths it, it maths is out in the domain, in public domain, and it's it, it's just as normal to talk about enjoying maths as it is enjoying reading or, or anything else. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, totally. And 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 actually, I like that word normal, making it feel normal that it's not. And, uh, you know, I do love the geeky nerdy stuff, and I'm I'm conscious of those words, geeky and nerdy. But actually, they've always grated with me. As one thing, I really don't like to be described as is either a geek or a nerd, even though people inevitably will, um, because I like the sort of making these things just, they're just normal, they're accessible. Let's just talk about them interestedly, not, you know, you don't have to be into the Big, big Bang Theory to, to like a lot of really nice things in math. So it, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but part of my sort of whole philosophy is is trying just gently to say, this is just this is interesting like history is interesting and, you know, uh, or is interesting to me or it can be. And, you know, have you, have you seen this thing? And it's uh, so, you know, not to make it seem like it's something only for uh, really, quotes, clever people. Fantastic. And now I'm just thinking if we've got a teacher listening to this and let, let's go for kind of worst case scenario here. So we, we've got a secondary school maths teacher listening. 
let's imagine they've got a year 10 class. So for, for international listeners, we're talking kind of 14 and 15 year olds. And in that class, there are a big old proportion of kids who absolutely hate maths. They've, they've had probably had negative experiences of maths throughout the last however many years. Perhaps they're in a, a fairly low set. Perhaps they've experienced kind of repeated failure for, on, on, for, for certain topics and subjects. And, and they keep coming up again. Oh, God, we're doing fractions again. Or we're doing facts and multiples again. Would you have any advice, Rob, to, to kind of get... The, I guess kind of get the ball rolling in, in changing their perception of, of, of mathematics because it is, it's di- I've certainly found it difficult so I wonder what your take on that is well you know number one thing I'd say is I'm not a teacher and I have such huge respect for teachers when I see what you know my my kids at school they go to the same teacher day after day you know not just a one hit wonder like me you can come in and do a talk and wow that was fun um so you know I I'm speaking from a perspective of someone who comes you know, is exposed to year 10s in a different situation. But um, what help, how do I deal with when I get groups like that? Um, there are certain things that that are maths, but don't necessarily feel like maths. Certain types of game, which engage a type of thinking, which is very mathematical, but but they just get into it. And, and you know, the great thing about games as an accessible uh, form of maths is that People are prepared to have a go and, you know, uh, and get it wrong in, in a game or, or adopt a strategy, which is not the best one, but they've still got a chance of winning. Um, uh, or just, you know, that notion of, you know, it's your move. What do you want to play? Well, I'll play something. Um, I'm just trying to think of a, of a good game that uh, works with that. Well, I wouldn't necessarily use this with, with year 10s, but, but certainly, you know, if I'm just off the cuff, Playing maths with anyone, any any younger kids, certainly I'll play a game of counting to 20 where you just count, right, taking the turns, counting one, one, two. Um, sorry, you can count one, two or three numbers um, and you keep going up. And the one who ends up saying 20 loses the game. I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's a sort of NIM type game. Oh, yes. I go one, two, you go three, I go four, five, six, you go seven. And everyone gets in. I mean, everyone can play it. Uh, and then, you you know, you finally get to 20. You want to encourage them, you ensure that they win. But uh, figuring out how to play it is really interesting. But uh, people who are not into maths at all will play that game because it's very easy to play and, you know, it feels like luck. And then you start spotting strategies. So so games would be one route. And I think another important thing is acknowledging that these people who find maths boring or don't like it do so for a reason. And I think it is quite interesting to, to, well, one thing I've done with um, FE Reset students, who are the hardest group I've ever had to deal with. Uh, so these are 16, 17 year olds who have failed GCSE many times is say, OK, uh, I want to hear what bits of maths you think might be vaguely useful and which bits you think are completely useless and just give them the, the power to say. And, 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 you know, right, you've got two minutes to think of the useful things and come up with two or three things useful. And then what do you really find this useful and to have someone inviting them to you know to say what they don't like i think is a at least acknowledges that you know we're not supposed to love all of it and they'll come back saying i just don't get algebra why are we doing it why are we doing um these things with triangles i'm never going to meet another triangle you know all these kind of things once you've got that maybe some other members of the class will say well actually i think that could be useful so putting it back to them as to what is the point of this i think um 
And I've heard people like Mike Ollerton, you know, talk in that kind of way, put it back to the class. And I, I like that idea of, uh, you know, they will have their own suggestions for how to improve things. That's fascinating. That now, now on this on this podcast, Rob, I often like to play devil's advocate and mm. trying to kind of stir up a, a bit of trouble wherever possible. Good, I like so, it. <laughs> so I wonder, and again, I'm just thinking of myself being in that situation, particularly as you say with with GCSE research, because that is a that's a tough gig. That and I've been doing some work recently with with colleges who just who have like a thousand GCSE research mm. students who who they take through and, and so on and so forth. Very very difficult. And mm. um, I, I've over the last few years, I think I've reached the conclusion, and I'm, I'm interested to get your take on this. That the the topics where kids say, "What's the point in this?" or "I don't get why we're doing this," or "I hate this," mm-hmm. I don't think they're the topics that kids don't see a use for. I think they're the topics that kids struggle with. And I I, I say this line in my book that um, very rarely do you hear a kid saying. Um, I don't get why we're doing this when they've just been successful at it. It's, mm-hmm. it's normally a hidden indicator that says, I don't get what we're doing here. So my kind of defense mechanism, instead of admitting I'm struggling, is to say, well, this is pointless. When will I ever use this in real life? Yeah. Well, my... or, or they find it extremely dull. I mean, they, it can be the other extreme, too. They might, but they might be just saying, you know, I've done I've done 20 thirds already. I can do these so easily. Why am I being asked to do another 50? So, so there's two extremes, but I totally accept the um uh, they've got to uh, uh, it's often because they find it really hard uh, yeah I, I think so and, and particularly like I, I got a bit obsessed reading the um, the literature into, into motivation and particularly the, the line of causation between motivation and success and and the, the mistake well I think it's a mistake but again I'd be interested to get your take on this is is in the first probably kind of seven or eight years of my career my, my focus was on motivation so it was anytime we I did a topic um, I would try and in, find a way to hook kids into it mm. and, and often that would be some dodgy real life situation mm. I'd be trying to shoehorn in some absolute nonsense um, into there to try and motivate them to then hopefully allow them to put the effort in which would then enable them to be successful and I think my, my kind of reading of the research and also just my experience over the last few years is, has been to flip it around the other way so to, to try and teach kids in a way that enables them to, to feel successful so that they can start to say, oh, I'm, I'm getting this. This is this is starting to make a bit of sense. And then almost the motivation kind of takes care of itself a little bit. So I've, I, I find myself less trying to spend time finding the hooks, finding these roots in and instead trying to focus my attention on choose carefully choosing examples, carefully choosing ways to, to explain things, different visual representations to enable kids to get things and then the kind of interest and motivation and confidence takes care of itself in a way i wonder what your take on that is I, that all sounds extra you know very credible to me and and you're the one with the the experience of doing this day on day and and and, and also dealing with with the kids the the, the tougher audience i mean I, I have my share of them but not you know more often than not i'm dealing with kids who are certainly engageable for um an hour and um but uh, so all those things you talk about i can see are so important and would be so good and be so good for 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 my kids and you know those that i know from other families the um you mentioned hooks though and, and i i do think if you've got the right hook mm. that can be a beautiful you know segue into then saying now that we're interested in this let's then go to your your basics but but finding a good hook uh, is difficult. A game can be a good hook if it's the right game. A, 
there are certain puzzles that can be a fantastic hook um uh uh but a but a contrived hook uh you know kids are smart and they can spot they can spot a ploy a mile off and you've got to be ahead of the game on that because otherwise you've you've lost them and i've lost them many times uh thinking you know oh they'll be interested in this but just you know what what, one of my just just on that sorry to interrupt one of my favorite quotes from from graham nuttall the hidden lives of learners he says that students are constantly on guard about being conned into being interested (laughs) i think that's a really really kind of smart way of of putting it that's fascinating. And um, just on that, Rob, as well, and kind of related to this one, I'm a big fan of your writing. I think I've got all your books behind me on my shelf here, but also I'm a big fan of your of your, your blog. And one post that you, you wrote fairly recently at the time of recording was about humour in maths lessons. And I, I found this absolutely fascinating. And it, again, this, this is related to, to what we've been talking about here, because... Often humour can be used quite powerfully to, to again, engage students, to, to get them to, to, to put a bit more effort in, to help the relationships form between between um, pupil and teacher. But you had a really interesting take on, on humour in maths lessons. I wonder if you could just, just take us through that, Rob, if that's OK. Yeah. So uh, there's there's lots of gradations there. So there's humour and there's comedy. Comedy's got its place in life. I'm not talking about comedy here and I'm not a comedian. Uh, I know a couple of brilliant comedians and I'm definitely not one of those. Um, I think a really lovely thing about humour is that a shared sense of humour is one of the closest bonds you can have with someone. If I think who are my best friends, they're the ones who find the same things as me amusing and i just you know so there's one something wonderfully bonding about that and if you in a in a room in a class where you share the humor of a teacher then then that that is already opening the doors to lots of other possibilities um also you know you said the importance of humor in math i, I think it applies in all lessons if i think back to my best teacher the most engaging lessons i had at school it was my german teacher we learned a lot of German, but we learned it with a smile and it was just that. And I remember vast amounts of it. So it's not just a maths thing. But um, I mean, my I had a personal reason for writing that blog because my daughter, who's good at maths, um, took GCSE this year. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she she did well, but but it was kind of it was very much a. Um, you know, it felt like she'd followed a drill and she'd just been doing exercises or whatever. And I did say to her, when when in the last two years did you ever laugh in a maths lesson? And apart from maybe laughing at something, because someone dropped a protractor or, you know, silly noise or whatever, she said, I can't remember ever laughing once. Uh, and, and part of this is that maths, there is this danger. We're so driven by the GCSE uh, maths being the be all and end all of maths that maths lessons become practicing GCSE lessons. And that is all you do, potentially, from the end of year nine to the end of year 11, if you're unlucky. There's very little enrichment, no time to go off on a tangent, or some teachers, they don't want to go off on a tangent. Um, And the trouble with GCSE questions is they are not allowed to be funny. Um, uh, you know, you look at you look at a lot of exams. They're very wordy and wordy to make sure they cover all eventualities. And they, they become in trying to be real world. They become very unreal world because they 
chop off all the fuzziness of the <laughs> world situation. It's very tricky. I do not envy examiners. And you can't make an exam funny because it depends on sense of humor as to whether you find a question funny. If you talk, give a character a certain name, it would make some people laugh, might make other people embarrassed. So I totally get that. But the unintended consequence of that is that if you, all you ever do is practice you know, do drills, training you up for GCSE or doing GCSE questions, then they're all this fake world of not real world maths and they're not amusing. And there's nothing in the style of those questions that acknowledges, look, I know this is a silly situation uh, and you're allowed to laugh at it. And, you know, we're all human, but let's get on with it. Whereas other questions you know, can be posed more naturally when it does, when you don't have to be exactly marking to know this is worth eight marks because that's going to be grade A worth or grade eight worth or whatever. Um, so I, I find it a shame that the stakes are so high, apparently, supposedly, on GCSE that that we lose a lot of the the joy along the way. I think you're right. Yeah, and it. Again, you'll have teachers listening to this who will be 100% agreeing, but then looking at, again, just schemes of work and um, looking at exam dates and what they've got to fit in before then. And it's it's hard, isn't it? Because it's it's, it's another thing that has to, particularly if if it's not your natural kind of personality, I guess that's the thing. Because yeah. then it becomes incredibly problematic, doesn't it? Because then as a te- there's nothing worse, I think, than kind of forced humor. When, yeah. Whenever you're trying, essentially you're reading off a script, you've planned a joke the yeah. night before. And it's just like you hear MPs do it in speeches and I just cringe thinking yeah. that is absolutely horrendous. Yeah. So the, there's the difficulty, isn't there, of, of doing it whenever you've got the time pressure and you've got the, yeah, the, the thing that it perhaps it's not natural to, to, to the teacher are, are there ways around that do you think are, are, is, is are there ways of getting getting the, these moments of humor in there it's a really good question i think you know number one is being natural so if you're not naturally that way inclined don't force it as you say but perhaps that's the time to you know i sometimes think you don't have to spend a whole lesson doing uh stuff that's you know not straight on uh you know your targets uh but but five minutes, five minutes a week doing something. And that might be a puzzle or maybe an easier one, uh, a clip from YouTube, something, some interesting example. And that then you've handed over the presenting to somebody else and the class is distracted. And then you can talk about it and you can say, what, what did you guys think of that? Did you enjoy it or whatever? And um, so let someone else do the humor on your behalf or, you know, find, yeah, find a, a puzzle that's topical or a situation that's topical and just raise it with the class as because sometimes, you know, uh, we've got a rugby world cup coming up and no one's into rugby most of the time. Oh, sorry. That's unfair. A lot of people aren't into rugby. I love rugby, but a lot of people aren't, but when it's world cup time, kind of everyone's into rugby because it's on telly. We're all talking about it, you know? So the certain, you know, being topical can be interesting. Everyone wants to talk about, you know, England qualifying in football or maybe people want to talk about the winner of Strictly less so now than in the past. But, you know, some of these topicals, suddenly it's a context to talk about a maths idea and it's a bit more fun and interesting and you can, you know, bring some maths ideas in. So those are my vague thoughts, but I'm not pretending this is easy. Um, but uh, but you can learn. You can learn how to not do the direst stuff. You know, you can <laughs> yourself to be funny, but you can learn how to not be 
completely boring. How how not to do a presentation in PowerPoint style where there's a hundred words on the slide? I mean, you know, there are certain basic things we should all be banned from doing. <laughs> and I think the the other thing I really liked from from the post, the and I will put a link to this in the show notes, is um that and I think you you quote this um from I think Arthur. I all struggle with with saying names. Collister and um, from the act of creation is says that oh, creati- yes, Arthur Kersler. Kersler, there we go. A creativity is ah, aha, and ha ha. And it, it's really nice because, um, again, just reading your post and, and, and listeners can read this, that then if you get one of those three things in there, so the ah, the aha, or the ha ha, if you get one of those three things into each maths lesson. That's not a bad thing to be thinking of in terms of planning. And I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd rather be thinking of trying to get one of those three things in mm. than what I used to have to do with all these bloody personal learning, thinking skills and learning styles and all these kind of the, the kind of tick, tick box exercises that I had used to do when I, when I was planning lessons. But just as a kind of big picture thing, trying to get these moments of surprise, these moments of of getting the kids feeling successful or all these moments of, you know, a smile on your face. I think that, that that's, that's a really nice thing to be thinking about when, when putting a lesson together. Again, does that make sense? It does. And, and, and the, the converse of that is to think back, you know, over the last week or two or whatever, you know, in lessons think, were there any aha or ha ha moments? And if there weren't, that might just be a little red flag saying need to do something about this. So, you know, just reflecting back on, how it has been um and whether there is an easy way of, uh, of overcoming that but yeah I, I i all of that i think uh, is important fantastic super okay well let's 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 start talking books then robert if it's all right and before we dive into your um most recent book just just a few questions about writing in general um i guess what, what what's your overriding game when you sit down to write a book is it to try and change public perception is it to try and make people smile is it to uh, get people better at maths what, what, what are you aiming to do when you sit down to write a book um if there is a general overriding principle if i've even never thought about it, um, <laughs> it it's that uh i want to write about something i'm interested in that's really um so i have a few times been approached by publishers saying we're doing this series about whatever would you like to write a book towards it and actually i, I, might, I might be interested in the content but it'd be writing to their spec and yes. I, I find that exceptionally difficult i have to write to my style with my own idiosyncrasies and uh, I find it desperately hard to write to anyone else's specification. Um, but yeah, I'm writing about what, what sees my interest. If I, you know, some, you know, sometimes at night I'm half asleep and that I find myself writing mentally a whole page, you know, it all comes flowing out. I imagine myself talking it and it's just, Oh, how would I, yeah. What, what's the natural sequence of presenting these ideas and da 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 da. So, um, you know, that's in the middle of a book writing uh, process, perhaps. But uh, I, I love the idea of just producing uh, producing a book. And at the end, you know, your name's on the front. You get disproportionate amount of credit on book. Compare that with many other art forms uh, or, you know, if you're involved in TV, for example, where the list of credits goes up the end, about 50 <laughs> people's names. But a book, all those 50 people might have been involved, but it's your name on the front. And it's, you know, that's hugely rewarding and you know probably overly rewarding though i suppose you take the flat when you get it wrong uh, <laughs> but uh but to have that physical object at the end say that's me and i've got it all down there and 
you know, if you want to know my opinions, just go and look at that. Read that, and it's there. I, that side is really, really rewarding. But you know, it has to be something that I want to write about, and then uh, it has to be something, of course, that needs that a publisher wants to publish. Is the <laughs> I interview. I'm very lucky to interview lots of people who've written books on this podcast, and I know um, people listening. There's, there's particularly in the education world at the moment, it's like book central. People are writing loads of books on on teaching. So if we've got aspiring uh, authors listening, um, I, I always like to dig into um, somebody's kind of writing technique. Or so, what, particularly whenever you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got this 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 argument, this page that you visualise. Are you getting out of bed there, Rob? Are you writing it down in case it escapes you, or are you just trying <laughs> that it'll be there in the morning yeah good question uh sometimes it bugs me for so long i do get up and go and write it sometimes i just hope i can remember a couple of key words and think right just remember to write about that generally i it were uh, i i retain something by morning and, and, and write it out but my you know i don't write in a particularly structured way and uh, but i do love you know that the, the, the I totally buy the principle of the best way of writing uh, good stuff is to just dump your dump what you want to say. Just write any old rubbish. Just get it down on paper and then put it to one side. And I found that a really useful thing. So, you know, if I'm last so working on my latest book, you know, a year ago, I allocated a week to go stay with friends up in Northumberland. and I'd just be in their back room gazing out the hillside and, and writing. And there were mornings when I think, I just can't think what to say. I'm, and so I would remember this rule. And I just write, I just write whatever comes to me. And times you think, this is complete rubbish. I almost <laughs> type that out, but just keep going, you know, target, write a thousand words. And actually sometimes that will kickstart the process of writing good stuff. Or sometimes you have to written rubbish to realize what the good stuff is. So you then read it later and think, good, I now know what not to write. And that's helped me know what, I will write. So that I, I remember it was actually my younger brother when he was, yeah, very young, but very wise. Uh, he was probably 18. I was 20 or something. And uh, but he said to me, you know, just just write things down. Just do it. And I thought, what a great bit of advice that is. And I've tried to follow that ever since. And are you um, are you writing for a particular audience or a particular person? And, and the reason I ask this is um, I, I like I, I like reading books about writing, about particularly nonfiction writing. And that's one of the one of the principles that seems to come through that the authors should have a particular I, a person or incredibly kind of niche audience in mind that they write for as opposed to what I've certainly been guilty in the past and kind of trying to write for everybody and you end up trying to you, you don't know where to pitch it you don't know what mm. prior knowledge to, to account for so did you have anyone in mind when you write uh, uh yeah I, I'm not sure I do actually other than I'm trying to write for the people I talk to so I mean once I've written stuff I always give it to friends to read and to critique so I'm kind of writing it for them and I take on board their feedback really, uh, you know, really important. And I normally have two people in particular, two extremes that I want to get feedback from. One is from the enthusiastic, supportive friend who I know will say, oh, I love it. This is great. That's all I want to hear. Is, you know. <laughs> uh, and the other is from the grumpy old fart who just wants to say that is, you know, I really, you know, we'll just pull it apart. We'll, we'll do the complete opposite of 
what's what good feedback is supposed to be and just tell you everything that's wrong first and then <laughs> just, you know thing at the end maybe say well i did quite like it well you know you say was there anything you liked but i do find both of those really helpful and i am writing for both of those people you know and and for a you know general general audience so you you saying you know trying to please everyone in a way i am sort of writing this for everyone hoping everyone will be interested in this i'm rarely one one group i'm rarely writing for is the the the, the mathematicians uh although that's not quite true sometimes my vlogs I, I realize this is such a niche thing only math people will read this but um but generally i'm i have a general public a curious public in mind if, if they want to know about it i want them to be able to read this and and feel enlightened <laughs> fantastic and before we dive into some of your books Rob, do, do you have a, a favorite book uh, on maths written by someone else or a couple of favorites if you want to mention a few completely up to you yeah well i, I mean I've, I've got a whole shelf uh, behind my whole, whole bookcase behind me full of maths books so there are so many uh, i'm going to pick out one because of the effect it's had on my children so most of the time uh and they're sort of youngest is is 10 the oldest is uh, 16 they they don't go and read maths books or whatever but there is one book that uh you know we do bedtime stories still and uh one book that has engaged all of them particularly my younger two and that was the number devil um and i don't know if you know the number devil it's no i don't know charming story about a boy who's not into maths who goes to sleep and in his dream he meets a number devil who starts introducing numbers to him and the boy plays the role of the sort of the skeptic and why would they interested and so on and the number devil just leads him chapter on chapter into discovering you know curious number properties odds and evens and um prime numbers and then he gets onto squares and all these other things and he uses non-maths language he invents these words that that um you know, we, the mathematician will know what word it's supposed to be, but he's using a different word, so it doesn't have the scary side of, uh, of maths language. And by the end, the boy's just been entranced by by numbers. And what what's so powerful about that is my kids saying, you know, I want, I, you know, I want the next chapter. I'm loving this and and spotting patterns and they're encountering maths ideas that quotes they're not supposed to have encountered yet because they're still in primary school. Um, so I. I mean, there are many other books who, that are, you know, achieve similar things, but that's the only one that they've actually, maths thing they've ever actually actively asked me to read to them. So that's interesting that and actually it's made me think so i'm a listeners may well know this got banged on it about it all the time i'm um uh, i'm a first-time father now my my little boy isaac he's, he's only seven months old and i'm worried as a maths lover myself that i'm going to do some of the things that we spoke about early on in this conversation that i'm going to force my love of maths on poor little isaac and he's it's going to be too much for him to, to to take in so as a pair as a maths loving parent rob do you have any advice what, what did you what did you try and do with your kids did yeah you, um, slowly introduce them to maths or did you, was it just kind of hands off what what, what was your technique uh, yeah that, that if i had some experience there yeah a few times i've gone too far <laughs> and, and, or you know my son age seven or eight say dad i know what you're trying to do here <laughs> so, you know what you were talking about in the classroom i have had that at home so reining back and uh you know letting them dr drive it has been one factor but we've played so actually many of the things i do with my kids are summed up in 
one of the books I wrote with Mike Caskew that's had the least attention of, of books I've done, called, a book called Maths on the Go. And it's just a hundred ways to engage your child in maths. And the the idea is maths should not be homework. It should be stuff you do in everyday life. And it should be playfully touching on maths. You know, oh, that bus has gone by. I wonder if that's the only prime number bus we'll see all day. That's a, a big, a big agreeably geeky end of things but um but my kids used to love me i've stopped doing it now because i can't carry them but um we used to play times table donk they go on my shoulders and uh i give them some sum to do like you know three plus four or it might be getting harder eight times three or whatever and they have to answer it before we get to the door frame, because otherwise they will donk their head and <laughs> walking. And of course, it never actually happens. But the jeopardy of that, they think, well, oh, I want to play it again. Time table donk. Or we'd be walking in the park and I'd play Who Wants to Be a Mathionaire? And uh, it's played for a genuine prize, maximum jackpot, 20 pence. We start <laughs> we start at one fiftieth of a penny with what's one plus one. And at any point, they can um, they can take the money. But they never did. They always went all the way to 20 people or, or failed, you know, but that's them choosing to do math. So these are some of the sort of games that, that we do. And actually, final tip that this was the most effective is work with all my kids. Um, you know, putting it, tucking them in at night, being bored. I, I started doing puppet shows with my hands, you know, just both hands called Bertie and Bill or whatever. And it's amazing how children will will accept puppets of the most rudimentary form. And I'm not a puppeteer, but, but, but we're all puppeteers with seven-year-olds. Um, and, um, you know, I'd invent all these characters on the spur of the moment and who did all these silly things and with a little five-minute routine. And I was bored one evening and I thought, ah, I'm going to introduce um, a new character tonight. Um, and uh, his name is Richard Smith. And he's the only mathematician in the village. This was... A- <laughs> Um, little Britain that had been, you know, was in my consciousness. And so Richard Smith. Um, and actually, before that, I'd had, you know, my eldest had sometimes asked the maths questions at bedtime. And I'd sometimes, you know, give her a really hard one because she was. And one time she burst out crying. She said, oh, that's too hard. And I thought, blimey, I have pushed it too far. I discovered that Richard Smith was the perfect antidote to this. So Richard Smith would come along. He would say, I'm the only mathematician in the village. I know the answer to this seven times eight uh and either she would know the answer which is she'd tell him or she she wouldn't know and richard smith would go ha 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 and he'd go disappear off under the bed and then she'd ask me to help her and we'd work on it together we'd come up with the answer richard smith reappears he says it's 56 oh drat how did you know that um and i discovered you can turn you can become a collaborator with your child just by introducing a third party and it's so powerful and even even now, gosh, I hope she, she doesn't listen to this. But even now, I think my 10 year old would play along with Richard Smith saying, I know the answer to this. She will talk to my my hand as another person, knowing full well what's going on. And yet she will you know, let Richard Smith go away and she will collaborate with me. And I think it's an incredibly powerful uh, technique. And it's joyful and it's funny. And you can add extra things like Richard Smith claims to be the only mathematician in the village and actually he's hopeless himself and he always uses a calculator and my kids will grab my wrist and stop him going off to you know he's like oh just need to do the washing and they'll say no you're off to use your calculator aren't you I'll grip him and you know, all these things and um so that's kind of I, I, you know and 
The other thing is, I don't mind if my kids don't love maths and I'm not expecting them to, 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 you know, love all the things I love and do all these things, but I do want them to be confident at it. So that, that's the baseline that I set. So I'll do anything to build that confidence and tell them what I think is important and maybe some of the stuff they're given and say, you know what, actually, don't worry too much about that. You don't have to for the rest of your life know what a numerator and a denominator are. Can't even say it. Um, because actually you'll probably not be required to uh, answer questions on that when you're in your 20s, unless you're a teacher. <laughs> That's great. Now, I'll tell you what, Rob, I've been doing this podcast for God, many years now, and often I have these kind of game-changing moments, and, and often they'll be related to how I present work to examples and a guest will suggest something or a new approach to problem-solving or something like that. But this could be a, a parenting game-changing moment. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, could transform both mine and Isaac's life. That. So right. thank you very yeah. much for that. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, I want to talk now about your books and, and again I'm, I'm kind of teasing the audience here so we're going to definitely going to get to maths on the back of an envelope but you, you've written so many um, wonderful books and it's again I, I could genuinely speak to you um, all day about these but I just want to pick out two that, that I I've, um, I, I mean I've, I've enjoyed many of yours but but these two um, particularly resonated with me and I think again it reminds me and when I saw you at um, a maths event, when we talked about you coming on the show, um, I, I think I told you when I, I first saw you as I was either an NQT or I was in my first year of teaching and you were doing a show um, for teachers. Um, and I'd never seen anything like it because what, what I loved, there was the excitement because you had a load of um, objects on the desk and people would just pick an object and that would then, yeah. you'd then launch into a story or an activity. And it's brilliant. And I've, um, where possible, I tried to do something similar. So I don't get, when, when I'm lucky enough to speak to teachers, so I don't get bored doing the same kind of routine every time. I'll put some options up and whatever grabs people will go down, down that line. And often these stories came from, um, or activities came from, from the, these two books that I wanted to talk about here. So yeah. if we take, um, why do buses come in threes? Yeah. Um, is there, I, again, it might be an impossible uh, question, but is there any particular, whether it's a story or an idea from that book that you can just share with, with listeners almost as a teaser to, to tell them to go and check the book out? Right. It, it's an interesting one to start with that one, because strangely enough, partly because it's so, a lot of stuff that was kind of relatively novel then is much more familiar now. You know, everyone seems to know about the Bridges of Königsberg now and all these other things that then it was kind of, oh, never heard of this. Um, so I don't particularly have a, a favourite bit of that book, I, 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 except the cartoons. I think the ca <laughs> putting cartoons into a book, um, it, I was inspired by a book called How to Lie with Statistics, and it was the Kalman-style cartoons in that book that brought that book alive. And it was a touch of the humour. It was a, you know, a cartoon can convey so much about the tone of a book just by looking at it. So I instructed my wonderful cartoonist for that, Barbara Shaw. I said, Barbara, can you kind of think Kalman cartoon style? Uh, and so I love the cartoons. I don't necessarily have a favourite part of that book, but bizarrely, thing about that and the similar books that I've done or I've co-written, uh, different people like different bits and there's no one bit that everyone likes and the other day a teacher came up to me and said oh i always like using that dating example in your game theory chapter about the two guys who are trying to uh, you know uh, date this this girl and i had to struggle to remember it and and then i i i, I did recall it i thought wow you know you'd ask me one of the bits that i think is a bit of a filler and a bit you know just 
made something very contrived up it it would be that so you can't second guess what other people are going to like interesting <laughs> it's frustrating but um but yeah so so it it it's this general thing that it there's it, there's a smorgasbord of different things in the, in that book and uh i suppose i like the fact that people can turn out to like something i never would have guessed uh would be something that that resonated and um, just sorry sorry i'm just just on that um i don't suppose you can remember the um the dating uh one off top of your head and the reason i ask is I'm, I'm imagining some single people listening to this, maths teachers, thinking this could be this could be my way in. This. So they should, I they should read they should read Hannah Fry's book on the maths of God. That would give them a lot more tips. But um, but the the idea is, uh, as I recall it, one one boy uh, it lives very close to this girl, so it could go straight round there. The other one has to cycle to get to her, but uh, or or they could or they can text her or. It, the original book they can phone her because texting didn't hadn't been invented uh, <laughs> and um and, and so that the, there's various payoffs you know by texting you get there quicker get to her quicker but she's less likely to be you know receptive than if you go face to face and you know uh, uh all these kind of stereotypical ideas in there about how how dating might happen and um uh, and so there's a little payoff matrix to say you know what what the best strategy for the one who uh, is close by is to is to just go to a door and the one who uh is uh needs to cycle should should text her first i think that's the <laughs> that's kind of how it so it's kind of commonsensical but it shows how you would set off a payoff set out a payoff matrix for any uh game in in life so that that's the that's the principle but i think a lot of the principle is use your common sense <laughs> Well, I tell you what, if there's if if, if listeners uh, use that strategy and it leads to some a wedding or something <laughs> in the future, just let, let us know. That, yeah, that it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about something from um, How many socks make a pair? Is there anything that that springs to mind from from that? Yeah. Book? So there's uh, that was the book that I really thought this is going to be the one. This is you know a couple of years later, Alex Bellos did a book that absolutely just massive bestseller, and I thought that socks was going to be the one and it wasn't so but it was every it was like the mass of everyday objects and uh uh you know socks and packs of cards and everything else and but there's one chapter in there about cards and card magic and there's a particular trick in there um about it is like a poker poker trick and i've uh, you know you, you lay 16 cards out and you turn over four and they're, they're really poor and then you get the your person you're doing the trick on to say right fold the cards like you fold in poker so we'll fold these cards over and when you fold them over then reveal the cards they've turned into four aces and it's a great trick i did that trick uh, at an mei conference a couple of years ago and it got a huge round of applause so there is no doubt this is brilliant and people want to know how it works nobody that i know has ever commented on that item in the book and it's quite early. <laughs> and i think the message is magic tricks don't really work when you're reading about them you know this will be a really good effect you have to have seen it and then go and read how it's done so that's a kind of a, a hidden bit of the book that i think is you know is just a wonderful thing that i was shown first by a guy called david singmaster who's a puzzle guru and he showed me this and i just thought it's wonderful and um, that's why it's in the book but but yeah it's funny how there there are things like the opposite of that dating example before things that nobody have ever commented on i think wow i assume they've read it but did nobody notice it <laughs> there we are. fantastic 
Okay, Rob, so let's turn our attention to your latest book, then, Maths on the Back of an Envelope. And again, it's, it's the usual obvious question, but but why did you want to write this book? Um, I have been into the idea of estimation and lots of stuff to do with arithmetic all the way through my life. So, you know, from when I was a, when I was a, a kid, I'd go to an event, you know, with my parents, it might be a concert or a play or a test match. Uh, and my dad would, you know, would say, uh, just to pass the time before the start, you know, I wonder how many people are in the crowd today or I wonder how much money they're making out of uh, ticket sales. So I got into this idea of just doing estimates like that. And it was just a natural part of, of the way I thought. And I, uh, in parallel with that, you know, people talk, describe me as a mathematician, but I would say I am at least as much an arithmetician. I am into arithmetic and uh, calcul- uh, calculating stuff. And my mum was too. She was not a mathematician, really, but she was an arithmetician, which means the ability to do calculations in your head and 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 and, and to quite enjoy doing that, doing the countdown uh, <laughs> or countdown challenges. So uh, I've been doing a talk called Maths on the Back of an Envelope for teenagers for about 10 years. And it just suddenly thought, you know what? It's it's suddenly back in fashion, core maths taking off, and it's all this stuff. And I just feel that, in a way, this is this is as much as probability is me. This is the other me. This is, you know, I'm totally at home in the world of arithmetic and estimation. So really, it and I've been thinking it's about time I did a book. I was waiting for an idea to come along, and then I realised it was staring me in the face and. Uh, so that's where it came from. I just think it's and, and in a way, I think uh, we have lost some of the art of being able to uh, and the confidence to work things out without a calculator. And I see this all the time. And, uh, you know, there's a, often a, well, why would you ever need to do this? Because we've got a calculator. So I wanted to make the case of actually there's a very good reason to not be entirely dependent on a calculator. I use a calculator lots and i use spreadsheets lots but uh there are lots of reasons why you don't want to go all the way on that so that's really where it came well let's dive into some of those reasons because that that's the obvious kind of elephant in the room here and it it does i tell you what it it does my head in because you get some quite high profile people and i won't name them here but it'll come out and say that there's zero point in doing any any kind of calculations in your head or even on paper when we've got everyone's got access to a phone we've got google we've got wolfram alpha we've got all these tools so why do we what are the reasons why we need to develop these skills you know, I think one of the most important reasons is a, is a very basic one. A lot, a lot of the time, uh, people use spreadsheets They're in jobs and everything else for adding up figures. You know, that's one of the standard things people actually use for calculating these days is a spreadsheet. Um, and there is an, a shocking figure, and I don't know what it is. I'm going to make up a number, but it's of this order. It's something like 70% of spreadsheets contain an error, and a classic <laughs> error is that, you know, you can sum a column, you say sum the column, you know, from um, A2 to A36, and you add up those figures, but you then change the spreadsheet and you, your sum doesn't cover the, the new top figure or whatever. So so the calculation at the bottom is wrong. Um, I don't know of any parallel evidence with making mistakes using calculators, but I suspect that a high proportion of first efforts of working something out on a calculator are also wrong. We press the wrong button, uh, there's a double zero because you hold it down too long. 
So in those situations, you're being given an answer and that answer is wrong. And and in the case of spreadsheets, it is wrong a significant portion of the time. What are we going to do about that? You know, if you don't have any instinct for saying that doesn't look right to me, let me just check and just do a quick, you know, rounded thing to say, check it's in the right ballpark. Say, wow, it should be, you know, it's out by a thousand. You know, it's out by a factor of two or whatever. Uh, If we don't have that, then there will be situations cropping up where we make decisions, where we do things which turn out to be wrong. We may not even discover we did it, but, you know, you get ripped off that way. You lose money that way. You, you, you know, so uh, so it is wrong to think that that calculators will give us the right answer. You know, it's only as good as the information you put in. But it, it is a real phenomenon that we get things wrong. So that's that's one part of it. Um, and um, the other thing about calculators is that they can they can take away a lot of the insights you would get by doing a bit more work on a problem, which might seem a bit strange. But um, I went once asked one of my daughter's primary teachers, great teacher, um, but I did say, when is my daughter going to learn how to, to do work out two sevenths as a decimal? Um, because she can do that already. She knows about short division. And he said, oh, that kind of hard thing we'd, we'd get them to do on a calculator. And I thought, the thing is, she can do this now. She could, she, she could do it very quickly. Um, but... If you do it on a calculator, you just see a number and it, it appears to stop. If you do it hand by hand, you discover that uh, the same digits start repeating uh, after a cycle of of six. And and if you do one seventh, it's the same digits. And so you discover patterns and uh, and and that's a reveal. You discover it yourself. The calculator has taken away the the reveal part of it. Uh, there are counterexamples, however, um, like uh, this is one of my favorite calc- number things. You know, you take the numbers 3, 7, 11, 13 and 37 or prime numbers and multiply them together. What answer do you get? Why does it make people go, ooh? And I'm not actually going to say what it is. I'll just repeat those numbers and anyone listening could stop. And if they're so inclined, get out the calculator. 3, 13, 7, 11 and 37. Multiply them together. And it gives a nice answer. And actually, that's the kind of thing where a calculator is at its best because it takes a hell of a long time to multiply those numbers together. And it may be the reveal is not that, um, you know, worth all of that effort. So calculators can be incredibly empowering, but we shouldn't be entirely dependent on them. So it's not an anti-calculator book, but it's the case for not being 100% calculator. Well, it's it's fascinating that um, Rob, because uh, as a t- as a teacher, and, and again, you, you'll feel this, but being involved in education, particularly over the last, I guess, fifteen years, 10, 10, 15 years, maths teachers have got their hands on some amazing technology, mm. particularly with with graphing. Like the graphing software that's around now is ridiculous. So, uh, in my when I first started, Autograph was 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 your only option, absolutely phenomenal piece of piece of kit. And now we've obviously got Desmos, we've got GeoGebra, I mentioned Wolfram Alpha, and so on and so forth. And then not to mention like the, the latest GCSE calculators that, that the kids have got, they're ridiculous what you can do on there. So mm. again, you can fill in all your tables of values for straight line graphs quadratic graphs and so on and so forth and it's difficult isn't it finding the balance of mm. of, of when this technology because if we didn't have the technology 
it mm. would be a disaster. It would be an absolute disaster because, again, I don't know how I would teach something like transformations or something like uh, straight line graphs. My teaching of it will be so bad compared mm -hmm. to what I can do now with the technology. Mm -hmm. So you lose the technology, we're in big trouble. But as mm -hmm. you've said, you lose the other side of it and the technology is useless because you have nothing to nothing to compare or contrast it with. You've, you've no intuition that what you're looking at, that you've no idea yeah. how it's been generated, is right. So it's a real difficult balance, isn't it? It is. And once you've once you've given people the technology, forcing them away from them is like, you know, it's artificially depriving them. It is a problem. Artificial intelligence, all that, you know, what's happening is the same kind of thing. Uh, we're moving to a world where why bother work, doing all this hard work when we can get, a, you know, we can solve it straight away doing this. And uh, uh, I do love um, uh, the... Uh, there's a there's a very quirky calculator. Oh, I'm kicking myself now, and they will kick me if they hear about it. Have you come across it? That you and it's um, a calculator where uh, it'll tell you the answer, but only if uh, only if you first estimate fairly close to what the right answer is. Yes, I know I know the exact one, and he's he's always messaging me because it, this has come up a couple of times, and I always forget to give him a shout out. So thank you for doing this. I think it's called yeah, is it called Q QMCA or something? Estimator. It's uh, yeah. Look, he, yeah. I, my humble apologies. I should know this off the top of my head, and I'm uh, uh, so it will come up. Uh, it, it, you can hear my tapping at the back. Um, I'm doing the same tapping as well. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but but the thing is, I think it's a beautiful idea. I really do. But you uh, to to set that up with a class, you need to get you know. You'd have to say, right, we're going to be deprived. I, I think it's something you'd have to do just almost like a game for a lesson. Just, you know, so why do we need to do this when we could just work it out yes. straight? Okay, today's game is doing it. But it's a bit like games where you sort of, you have to come up with a number, but you've, one of the keys on the calculator isn't working. So you have to think around. So you deliberately damage the division key so that they then have to work out something times something or something divided by something without using that key. And that builds understanding. Um, but uh, uh, yes, it's a it, it's it's very difficult. But well, I, I tell you, an, an exercise I'm going to be doing with some teachers in the near future, and I might try it with the occasional interested class, is introducing them to that wonderful old-fashioned technology, the slide rule. All right, um, <laughs> I, they're really clever. I showed it to my daughter the other day. You know, well, how does that work? Um, and the idea of sliding this thing up and down. But what's really lovely about slide rules, I realized, because I was the very, very last year of, I, I did use a calculator at school, but for one year we did use slide rules. And um, uh, it, what I realized it taught me was, firstly, you didn't get, if you wanted to do 23 times 94.6, uh, you could only get it to three significant figures at best. So you're already learning some of the tools of coming up with a, a you know, the right, uh, an accurate but not precise answer um but secondly uh the slide rule did not tell you whether the answer was you know 150 or 1500 or 1.5. so you had to figure out what what the what the place values were you know where to put the decimal point and that was a so you were being forced into this it wasn't a deliberate test it's just the way a slide will work um and that is a really valuable both of those are really valuable skills so i uh, thank you slide rules for giving me that um giving me those skills without me realizing at the time that they were doing it
it's dead interesting this i'll tell you the flip side of this rob and again i'll be interested if you agree with this and this is something um joe morgan and i have discussed a couple of times on on this podcast particularly when we've been doing our, our conference takeaways and that's um again another mistake i've made for for many years in my teaching is is underappreciating that there's actually a fair bit of knowledge required to use technology and let, let's take a calculator for example so i just assume that, that of course kids can just use a calculator of, of course you can and um and maybe we'll do the odd kind of token kind of calculate a lesson where we'll do some activity that involves just checking they can use all the different functions but but what amazes me um and again I'd, I, maybe teachers listening can relate to this as well is that often particularly when you get like a calculator paper at gcse a lot of students won't use their calculator they'll do they'll do it by hand even though they've got the calculator available possibly mm. because they, they simply just don't feel confident using it whether it's to yeah. multiply some fractions together yeah. or to yeah. as i say fill out a table of values and what i'm trying to do more more often than not these days is is kind of interleave calculator use within as many different topics as i can just just so kids see that the calculator calculator is just another tool available to help them that they should use when mm. it's when it's appropriate to and not just assume that just because i can use a calculator kids can use a calculator because i never do that with another topic in maths i never assume just because i can solve a yeah. quadratic kids can but it's just this assumption and i think it's because i assume kids are brilliant at technology and calculate a piece of technology <laughs> all of a sudden they can use it as efficient as i can but it, it's not often the case is it it's very true. And, uh, you know, the classic button on the old fashioned, you know, the, 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 the basic calculators, which ironically tend to be the ones used in primary schools, that they're the most flawed ones. <laughs> they have a, a percentage key. Knowing yes, how to yes. use that, you know, and depending on which order you press buttons, you can end up with numbers that don't even have the correct digits because the percentage is, you just have to know which order to, 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 at what point to press that button. And no one ever, assumes that you have to follow any instructions to do a calculator it's supposed to be intuitive so yeah i think that's a, there's a huge point there in knowing in knowing how to formulate the maths to stick it into the calculator it's in, where to insert brackets because they you know no one tells you where to put those yeah uh, i think I, I i agree it's they're harder to use which is possibly one reason why people um get things wrong with calculators a lot. I, I talked to some uh, staff. They weren't the teachers. They were the support staff at a primary school um, a few months ago. And I said, oh, I'm just curious, you know, do you, do all of you use calculators? Yeah, we all use calculators. I say, when you do the calculator, do you tend to do it, do a calculation once or do you do more than once? And the consensus was they tended to do best of three. So they, did, <laughs> they got the same answer twice. That was probably it. So there we are. I think there's a lot of best of three going on out there. That is fascinating. That is fascinating, which, again, brings us back to, to, to the subject of the book. That, that again, these, these estimation techniques, if we, if we can do these beforehand, we can at least we've got a, a better chance of identifying where, when errors are made. So if we move on to kind of the second section of your book, where we start talking about tools of the trade, I wonder now these may be two separate answers or you may have the same answer for both. Do you either have a favorite estimation technique yourself or is the one that you feel would be particularly useful if we've got a teacher listening that they could show their students just at a practical level to, to yeah. stop them maybe making some of the common mistakes that we see kids make? So either two techniques or one, Rob, whichever you want to do. Yeah, well, I, 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 so many things I could talk about, but one that's been very close to my heart uh, in recent uh, times is conversion and particularly conversion from imperial to metric. 
Yes. And you'd think, yeah, but, you know, we're in a metric country, da da da. So here's the finding that I have found, and it is staggering. I have asked hundreds of 15 year olds to estimate the height of somebody else, a celebrity, um, yeah, by showing them a photo. And their estimates are generally quite good. But the, the, the intriguing thing is that about three quarters of teenagers, when estimating another person's height, will estimate it in feet and inches. Now, they have not learned any of that at school, maybe touched on it in primary. But they they know their height in metres, centimetres, but they think about other people's height in feet and inches. It's a cultural thing. They think about other people's weight, about a third of them, more than a third of them, think about other people's weight in stones and pounds. Don't even know what a stone is in pounds, but they'll still... So, you know, so... It's wrong to say this doesn't matter. It really does matter. And adults the same. And it means if you think in miles and someone thinks in kilometers, you need to be able to convert from one to the other. You go to America, they're entirely imperial units. They, their engineers work in foot pounds and everything else. So imperial is far more out there than we like to think. And therefore, the ability to convert and to convert in your head. And some of the conversions are really hard. You know, they two and a quarter pounds to a kilogram, you know, uh, multiplying by that. But in terms of estimation, a straight, uh, getting close to the mark, you can normally get most of the conversions by doubling or halving. So um, a kilogram is about two pounds. It is a bit more than that, but it'll do. Uh, a litre is about two pints. And knowing those kind of things and being able to double and half, I think it's a really good skill. And it'd be great. If kids, rather than thinking, oh, I've got to multiply it by 1.75, say, look, let's double it. And that will give me a feel for what that is. And what really shocked me was when I asked, uh, I've done this a few times, asking year 10s uh, to estimate the distance from London to New York. And they might say a 1,000 miles or 10,000 miles. you know, And the answer is about 3,500 miles. That's okay. I then say, right, tell me what it is in kilometers. About half of them will multiply the answer by 10, for example. They'll say, oh, if it's um, 2,000 miles, it's 20,000 kilometres. I think because M looks a bit like metre, and they uh, uh, yes, yes. a thousand times will be too much. But, you know, just no sense of that conversion. Uh, and again, very, very roughly, kilometres, you know, two kilometres to a mile, but 1.6 is better. Um, and then a beautifully quirky you're never going to use this in practice unless you're like me um, way of converting kilometers to miles is the fibonacci sequence and the fibonacci sequence goes one one two three five each term is the previous two terms added together so three five the next one's eight because three and five is eight five and eight is thirteen turns out once you go far enough up the fibonacci sequence and from eight onwards Whatever number you have uh, in the sequence, like eight, the next number, 13, is really close to being that number of miles in kilometres. So eight miles, 13 kilometres. 13 miles, 21 kilometres. And it works the other way around. So you want to convert 34 kilometres into miles. It's going to be the previous um, Fibonacci number, because it's uh, which was 21, I think, doing it in my head. Um and uh, the reason for that is just a bizarre thing that the ratio of numbers in the Fibonacci sequence as you go up gets closer and closer to the golden ratio, which is 1.61 or whatever. And that's really close to the conversion from uh, miles to kilometers, 1.61. Uh, 
so there we are in France. You know, you're driving along and it says 21 kilometers to the next uh, to next town. You say, I know what that is in miles. That's 13, almost exactly, which is the most brilliant. And, and if it's, you know, if you've not reached a Fibonacci number distance, you just say to your other half or whoever you're traveling with, you know, just let's wait a few kilometers. And <laughs> that's the answer. So, you know. I'm not pretending that's what I was going to do. And yet there will be a few people like me who will just be looking out for opportunities to do it's, that. It's brilliant, that one. I, I, and I, I only discovered that, like, I've, I've been messing around with Fibonacci for, for years as a, as a teacher and, and a kid. But, yeah, that was one that escaped me up until a couple of years ago when somebody pointed that out. It's absolutely brilliant. I absolutely, yeah, a really, really nice use of Fibonacci. I'll tell you what I was going to ask you, Rob, just before um, we carry on with discussing the book one thing that struck me just just in this conversation and yeah. again i don't know how i've missed this and this may be the most obvious thing in the world but obviously kids being able to estimate um is, is a really important um skill for, for the reasons you've outlined yeah. but again there's a danger and i think i've made this mistake of assuming that just because kids can round something you know whether it's one significant figure or whether we're just a bit less informal it's close to this and close to this if they then can't do the following calculation, that estimation is potentially either not going to be helpful or going to be wrong or not going to exist at all. So, for example, you imagine somebody rounding something to 10, rounding mm. something else to 100 and then having to multiply those together. If yeah. they can't do those kind of core skills and you, what's quite nice about this, it's fairly self-contained. It's you kind of it's your powers of 10 being able yeah. to add, subtra uh, multiply and divide them. It's as you say, it's your doubling and your halving. The, these core group of skills but if yeah. kids can't do those yeah they the power of this estimation it, it falls apart doesn't it a bit so it is a, it's, a, it's an odd, almost a paradox and i cover this in the book really that i'm talking about approximate is good but there are strange enough there are some well not strangely maybe but there are some things you do need to know exactly and and the fundamentals i say apart from basic arithmetic basic addition subtraction is knowing your time ta times tables just up to 10 is enough and knowing how to multiply powers of 10 to, to get order, uh, together to get orders of magnitude that those are the key things so i do think it is really valuable to be able to multiply in your head or on back of an envelope either way 20 <laughs> times 20 times 80 by knowing two eights of 16 tick, stick two zeros on the end 1600 uh and to, you know you don't have to be able to do this fast but it's really in one thing in life you know we we talk a lot about maths being a slow thing and it's fine to take your time and that is all true but actually arithmetic reacting to numbers and so on that is one time when it does help to be to be quick and you know instantly know well look i know what seven times four is and i know what 70 times 40 is going to be roughly uh it can really help you and uh so um you know th th that's a time when i say well you don't have to be fast but it's but it's not a it's not a bad thing to be fast when when working that out. So there are some fundamentals you do do need to know. Fantastic. Um, the the third section of the book you talk about everyday estimation, and I, I really enjoyed this. There's some uh, cracking cracking stories and tales in there. I wonder if there, is there anything in particular you you'd like to pick out? Do you have a favourite uh, kind of story or anecdote from from that section of the book? I do. Legoland. <laughs> oh, nice. So yes. true taking my kids to Legoland for the nth time and you stand in the queue for, oh, we want to go to Pirate Falls and they pull at the start one hour to the next ride. You think one hour, one hour trudging up and down the queue to get drenched at the far end. I mean, you know, I've, we've all got our threshold. I can't leave them to it because they're too young. So being the kind of dad I am, well, it's two things. Firstly, 
I want to know that if it is an hour, we're not going to be staying here for an hour. But actually, we can we can helpfully address this by working out, doing an estimate as to how long it's going to take. And, you know, these queues, I'm sure you've been to a theme park, either they wind their way up tantalizingly so you can see the ride. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're going past this little river and you can see how many boats are going and how many people are, are in the boats. So uh, we genuinely did this. All right, we're going to do a survey over the next three minutes. How many people go over three minutes and we'll we'll work out what the rate is per minute of number of people uh you know when a boat goes past it's got four people in it that's great that depletes the queue and the next boat goes past it's got nobody in it I think it's <laughs> but anyway you get an average do a bit of statistical sampling and you work out i don't know what it was you know uh, tw- uh 12 people a minute are going through or something um and then you count how many people there are in the queue and from that you can work out how long you could expect uh, this queue to take and when we did that it turned out it was going to be i think 22 minutes or so you know to, about 20 minutes and i thought okay so that one hour was wrong they were either lying to us or they just miscalculated so that 20 minutes is much better we've already passed several of those minutes <laughs> doing this we'd forgotten about something called queue bots which are the people who pay to get to the front of the queue without having you know oh yes the private sector versus whatever it is anyway some metaphor there but um uh and um uh so it did actually take 25 minutes but yeah that was just a classic this is this is both mentally stimulating but it's also got a practical uh outcome and there are many you know that's a fun one but there are lots of real world situations which are like that and i think uh uh, that that's why I think it's a great skill to have. And, you know, I, I meet uh, people who are in the sort of business world or en- engineers or whatever. And they say, this is the kind of thinking we use all the time. This is the number one skill we want to have our recruits coming in with, you know, to be able to do that. If they could do that, you know, we can forget most of what else they did at A-level. This is what we really want them to have. But no one's really saying that, you know, in the in, in school well maybe core math is saying that but I, I like to reinforce that that is what people say to me fantastic super i, lo- I love that story and as i say i absolutely love that section um, and the, the final bit of uh, the final part of the book is called figuring with fermi yeah. um, and th- th- this has again had a lot of um resonated a lot with me because just before i became a, a teacher I, I did i did economics at university and i was t- very tempted by the corporate world and i went for a couple of interviews with um either management consultants or investment banks and so on and it was the classic interview question that they wheeled out at some point was one of these and i didn't know it as a fermi uh, estimation at the time but it was the classic like how many people have been alive on the earth since whatever year and all this kind of thing and i was like geez because i was always a decent mathematician but this this was a different level this because this was making assumptions stating the assumptions being quick with those estimates and so on and so forth and i found this difficult and anytime i've i've tried something similar with to students that i find they find this difficult but difficult in a really useful way it's it, it's a fascinating thing so i wondered um just to end our kind of discussion um about your your latest book i wonder if you could take us through um an example of one of these questions that could be answered using the, the fermi approach because it's fascinating to well, again anytime i model a worked example to kids they find it particularly useful when i talk through my thinking so i wonder if you could kind of replicate that to, to yeah. upskill us all on this approach if that's okay Rob. I mean, it's really interesting because a good fermi question is one that doesn't create the reaction who cares because that is the problem <laughs> yes why is anyone ever going to need 
to know about how many people have lived on the pole or can't they just look it up so so it, good Fermi questions kind of despite yourself you think i'm kind of interested to know <laughs> one that i've used for a few years just because uh, it, it, it addressed a few issues with me but uh was uh, the speculative question how often does the typical i'm going to call them american teenagers so as not to offend brits how often does a typical american teenager say the word like in a year Nice. Like, hello, nice. like, whatever. Because we're all conscious that at a certain age, people start saying like an awful lot. So uh, my approach to this is to um, take a sample, just like with Legoland, and uh, and say, OK, um, let's... I, I actually scoured YouTube, found, you know, a couple of teenagers chatting. You can, there are various places you can find all these sort of, you know, people just having inane conversations with each other. <laughs> I've got very deep, profound conversations anyway. That, when they're being natural, then you start hearing the likes come out and you can work out how many times they say like over five minutes and work out the average like rate per minute or that, what proportion of their words that what I call their like quotient. And it's amazing how a lot of people, especially there's a certain age where it cuts in and it cuts out when they're older, but about sort of 16, 17, like quotient of 10 percent, one in wow. 10. Wow. You wow. say, I reckon some people peak even at 20 percent. But they can't sustain that for an entire conversation. <laughs> I don't want to listen to it. So it's, it's a surprisingly common word, much more common than the and er uh, and all these other things. Um, so then you start saying, well, OK, and how many times would they uh, how, how long is, is, is a chatty teenager talking during a day? And you know, just common sense, maybe three hours. I don't know what figure I came up with. You know, uh, so they're, if they're talking for two or three hours, you can work out how many likes per day. And then multiply that by 365 or, you know, simplify it, just round it, call it 400. You know, I'm a great believer in rounding numbers to one significant figure. And, and you know, I come up with a figure of anywhere from a quarter of a million to half a million to maybe some might even manage a million likes a year, which is a lot of likes. Wow. Yeah. So um, there we are. And, and, and who cares? I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But it's kind of interesting. I, I just love the playful nature of some Fermi questions. Um, that's lovely. No, lovely that. And again, I think that's something it, it's, it's got a purpose. It's got an interest, but also it's got a useful classroom application that because all that stuff that's happening there, the, the rounding to one significant figure, the fundamentals of, of place value powers of 10 and, and the things we talked about before they're they're all valuable skills that, that need practicing. And I think that's mm -hmm. a, it's a really nice way of, uh, of bringing it together. No, I, lo I love that. And yeah, I absolutely love, absolutely love the book, Rob. Um, and just a couple more um, of areas of interest I want, I want to speak about before yeah. I let you go. The first is maths inspiration that we you've talked about um, a little bit, but it's a wonderful initi initiative. And I just wonder if you could just tell listeners about it if they haven't heard of it or perhaps they want yeah. to know more. Um, how did you get involved and, and how can other people get involved? So the big idea is every other subject has a field trip. Why shouldn't maths have a field trip? A chance to <laughs> go and discover more about your subject and remind yourself that there's more to math than taking exams and what prompted setting this up and the math inspiration is uh, a math inspiration show is held in a theater a big theater typically uh it might be a west end theater the, like the savoy theater last year we did in london the phoenix this year west yorkshire playhouse so in a theater in that sort of whole atmosphere uh an interactive lecture show uh, about different ways in math in which maths uh, might be uh, used by presenters who use it in different ways and with a with a hint of humor and 
it's it's not really theatrical but it's not lectures either it's somewhere in between so we do call them shows and it's just to just create a whole different sense of what maths can be and uh it came particularly sparked by knowing that there were lecture days happening but they tend to be very long and tend to be very much for private schools um and oh and mainly in london um and i just thought something shorter and in a theater and it just a bit slicker would be would be good and also because i was sometimes being invited out to a school um to come and give a tour oh there'll be 200 people here we invite the neighboring schools and you trek all the way across to bristol i remember bristol in particular (laughs) for example and you're actually doing a talk in the canteen and only 50 have turned oh sorry the other class uh we've forgotten they had some other thing today and also um the other school couldn't make it you think well this has been a waste of everyone's time and you're only seeing me if you don't like me then you know uh you've got no other person who might be uh you know giving you a different take so why don't we have an economy of scale have three presenters and a compare and that's our format for mass inspiration so there's always something in it for everyone and you know in ideal world you know, you have uh, teenagers leaving saying, I loved all of that. But sometimes they say, well, I particularly liked uh, Aoife Hunt because of her applications in it for rock concerts or whatever. And that doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter if they love it all or some of it. Um, but it's to have an experience of seeing maths can be normal every day and enjoyable and seeing all these other teenagers who look a bit like you. And they seem to be enjoying themselves as well. Uh, and my perfect outcome, funnily enough, because we're really trying to reach as well as the ones who like maths, we're trying to reach the ones who might be quite good at it, but don't think they like it. And to overhear a 16 year old leaving, saying to their friend, that wasn't as bad as I expected, (laughs) because it means they didn't want to go in the first place. And this was just a chance to get off school. And therefore we have, that's a big box tick. And we, I think quite a lot in our audience are like that. Um, And um, so, you know, uh, and we these are heavily subsidised, so a typical ticket will be of the order of ten quid. Um, you can reclaim the VAT. I mean, it varies a little bit from where we are, but that sort of thing. Teachers are free, and there are some schools who say even ten quid is too much, and we do what we can to make it accessible. And you know, the, the website shows exactly where shows are coming uh, coming up, and hopefully, there's always one within a coach ride of most schools uh, in in England and and in south wales as well and uh you know just to encourage teachers not don't just bring your top set who will do anything to do with math bring the ones who've got the potential to be engaged and you know they might get a pleasant surprise so that's the thinking behind it really that's fantastic and the website's mathsinspiration.com and there'll be a link to that um, in the show notes so it's, it's a wonderful initiative Rob and yeah I, as I'll reflect on that in the in, on the takeaway at the end of the show but yeah definitely yeah, listeners check that one out and get, get your kids along um, and the other thing I just wanted to touch upon and again I could I could talk to you for hours about this Rob is, is puzzles because mm-hmm. you're a you're a brilliant puzzle writer um, and we used to have a section on this on this podcast in the early days where each guest would set a puzzle at the end for the listeners but guess we're getting putting so much time thinking about the puzzle that they didn't have time to think about the other questions and it all, all kicked off from there. But just before uh, we, we talk a little bit more and perhaps get you to set a puzzle for our listeners, um, what, where do you start with writing one, Rob? Is, 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 is it, are you just waiting for inspiration to hit you? Or how would you, if, if, if I said, you, if I locked you in a room now for an hour and said, write a puzzle, what, what, where, do, where does it begin for you? 
Well, you're being very complimentary to say I'm a great puzzle writer, whatever. I, 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 of, of, of all things, you know, I, I get ideas from elsewhere. You adapt things you've heard or whatever. So I, I'm, I'm a very good filterer of other puzzles. So the only ones that I let out the other side are the ones I like. But, you know, so many puzzles that have my name attached to them, I've just adapted something I've heard, given character names or whatever. So I'm not going to take the credit for inventing. And, and there are very few new puzzles anyway. But there's a lot of things that are out there that get called puzzles. And I think that's not a puzzle. That's just a, a routine maths question. It's got no joy. It's very contrived. So so I will take the credit for being a good filter. Um, <laughs> but um, so if you were to ask, lock me in a room, I'd say, well, please lock me in a room with uh, you know, 50 Martin Gardner books and, you know, <laughs> a whole over you know, other newspaper columns and I'll dig through those and I'll find some gems and I'll come out the other side and maybe I'll adapt one to a context that it is, you know, topical. But that's what I would, that's what I'd do. So it, is, is, he the, is he the greatest, Rob, Martin Gardner for you? Would, would that yeah, be the, the best ever? And he was a filterer too, a brilliant one. I mean, he did, he did produce his own, own material, but his, his, incredible skill was taking other stuff and and putting it in a form that was very widely accessible that was his genius and so he was one of the best ever but i think many of the puzzles he listed he would not have taken the credit for himself but but that's where i first heard about them and he had a perfect way of rephrasing a, a problem he'd seen into a into a way that immediately drew you in so yeah i think he one of the best uh of presenting them uh, the best ever was probably um Dudney, a victorian who came up with many classics that we still use today and he just you know hundreds of puzzles that are now regurgitated in puzzle books across uh, the world and he just came up with them he was the originator fantastic well did you have a puzzle to, to share with listeners um well this is one that's in how many socks make a pair which i remember uh, d- d- giving to a, a maths conference years ago. And, you know, these things sometimes go do the rounds and they become familiar and then they get forgotten. So yes. I think this one might have be, become a bit forgotten. It's a biology question. Uh, it's um, uh, uh, It goes like this. So, uh, your listeners have to stop and listen to the details again. But it's basically um, uh, a woman is 21 years older than her son. In six years time, she'll be five times as old as her son. Where is the father? <laughs> wow. It's a simultaneous question, uh, equations question that you want it sort of narrowed down. But no, I, so I love that one because it's got a, it's got a reveal at the end. Which some- say, say it to us one more time, just in case people are driving and want to just ponder this. So listen carefully, audience. Right, here we go again. Yeah, I'm just going to find the page again because you just you just be putting the book down in pleasure. So, uh, <laughs> but it, the puzzle is called Where's the Father? And it's in the, one of the puzzle chapters of that book. Here we go. OK, right. Here we go. Uh, a woman is 21 years older than her son. In six years' time, she will be five times as old as, as her son. Where is the father? I would be amazed if any of your listeners, if they're driving, can do this in their heads. Hats off to them. They will need the back of an envelope now. That's what I think. Fantastic. Love it. Fantastic. Right. Well, just before I hand over to you for your big three, Rob, just a couple of reflections. Um, I like to ask my guests uh, questions along these lines just to get them to have a bit of a kind of nostalgic look back at where they've where they've been and how they've got to where they are now. So is there an example of something important that you've changed your mind about, Rob? Um, So this is relatively recent in the grand scheme of things. But um, I so I, I, I learned my arithmetic very Traditionally, you just taught a method mechanically, da da da. I didn't know how long division worked, but I could do it. 
then I discovered uh, chunking. Do you remember chunking? And, and yes, the yes. And I suddenly, oh, is that how long division works? Oh, I love this thing about understanding what you're doing rather than just blindly following a thing. So I, I was a big convert and I was doing quite a lot of evangelizing about I just love this whole approach of, of understanding and then, you know, applying it. But then, so that seemed to be my epiphany. But then, um, you know, you see your own kids doing it, see how long it takes to actually come up with an answer and how uh, prone to errors this is and everything else. I think actually in the grand scheme of things, you've got someone to emerge able to do these divisions. And frankly, do we need to be able to do big, long divisions? You know, uh, but but anyway, actually, maybe there is something for the way I was taught in the first place to learn the method first and then have the revelation of discovering how it works afterwards. So I'm not sure where I am now, other than I've kind of swung one way and I've swung back the other way. And I see arguments about this. Uh, on Twitter and everywhere else all the time and think, whoa, there's, yeah, there's, these, there's no simple answer to which order to do things, but, the, but I see my mind being changed. Kind of depends on the person as to whether understanding's better for them or just blindly learning a thing and then having the reveal later. Um, so there we are. I have that, changed my a, mind. But that, I is, that is a fascinating, that's a, a great bombshell to drop towards the end of this, this podcast, Rob, here, because this is something we've spoke about a lot on the show um, over the years. And, and I, I would be, have been on a similar journey to you as, as a teacher. I would have always tried to explain to students why something worked before showing them how to do it. Mm. And I just ran into so many problems with, as you say, I think it's, it's student dependent and also obviously topic dependent. Sometimes explaining why something works is far more complicated than just doing it and the problem you've got there is by the time you get to just doing it you've lost half the kids they've already decided they don't have a clue what's going on they mm. hate this particular thing and so on whereas yeah. as you say um if and again lis listeners hate this so they'll, they'll be directing the hate mail towards me rob and i might copy you in on a few here, just, <laughs> just, just just you can take some of the flack and um, what, what i what i tend to do now as i make a decision if if the explaining why is a lot more complicated than the how and i make a judgment based on kids back past experiences of maths i'll make the decision to teach them how to do it and that means i can then whether it's next lesson next week or whenever it is i can come back to them and say you know that thing you're really good at yeah. well now let's try and figure out why it works as opposed to i'm going to try and explain to you why something works that you've never seen before you've no buy into and it's going to get really complicated for some kids that is that's a bit of a red flag that that can be problematic but as i say i know <laughs> from from conversations that that doesn't sit well with um, a lot of listeners but, I, I sometimes watch these on the sidelines. I think I'm not going to go in there. And <laughs> yes. I am not a teacher and I don't have to deal with 30 diverse people in a <laughs> on a one to one basis. I think I can make a decent call. But yeah, I I don't have any miracle answers for this. I just realize now a lot more than I used to how complicated it is. Yes, nice. That's the position to take. I like that. And f final question. And um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started out that you know now? Uh, but there isn't just one way of doing it. Um, yeah, I, I think probably the biggest thing that I've taken on board is the importance of feedback, testing things out. Don't assume just because you think it's going to it works in your mind that and you think someone's going to take away a certain bit of understanding that that's what they do take away from it. So so I have just increasingly I think feedback is such an important thing and being ready for what that feedback will be. So if you ask for feedback, 
you have to be ready for someone to tell you honestly what they think. Or if, and if you don't want them to tell you something bad, point them as to what feedback to give you. So say, I want you to tell me what you liked about that. Um, you know, I don't want to hear any downside, but um, I just think feedback is a, just really important. And, and I, I value that, you know, when I'm looking at speakers for mass inspiration and so on, uh, the very best speakers and there's, your listeners will know many really good speakers and what's really good about them is that they are really good at taking feedback uh, and it's a standard part of, of a mass inspiration show at the end of it teachers will all submit forms and there will be feedback on there um we read it all there's sometimes if, if there's one comment saying i thought that was really dire da, 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 yeah, it's it might be an outlier but if there's two that normally means they're onto something you know so uh i think you have to be, be ready for that and um we give each other feedback um a lot and, and again we sort of try and be constructive but um you've got to get better and that's the way of getting better i think fantastic yeah very good advice and yeah something i, I i've uh, yeah certainly kind of struggle with over the years it can be hard to take sometimes mm. particularly when you've put a lot of effort into something yeah. and so on and so forth but you're right it's 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 the only way to to improve fantastic well uh, let me hand over to you now rob so this is your your big three and yeah. um, so are there three websites blog posts or whatever you want that you would recommend our listeners check out and i'll put links to each of these in the show notes page so take it away rob okay uh, i mean i such a hard choice. So these, these are just a sort of representative sample, I guess. Um, number one, I am a huge fan of a charity called Full Fact, who uh, like to dissect numbers in the news and say, is it true that, and you know, put insert government propaganda figure here, you know, is it true that X percent of teachers do Y or whatever? And they just pull these apart in a wonderful, sensible back of envelope. Or, or more rigorous kind of approach. Uh, and I just think the work they do is so vital in these, uh, in this era of fake news and allegations and this, that and the other. So I love full fact. Um, I love the, there are so many people writing blogs out there and many of them are quiet blogs that just unassumedly, you know, someone publishing a blog and they don't really mind if anyone's reading it or not. It's just a handful of people and they do it anyway. And the, just to pick an ex, just one sample of that. Um, there's a, a blog called A Maths Teacher Writes, and you'd have to dig around to find out who writes it. And it's I'm I'm 99% sure it's a teacher at Millfield School called Jeff Peabody who writes it, but his surname's not anywhere that I could find on his blog. And it's just reflections, sometimes about math stuff, math in sport and everything else. And it's whimsical and it's slightly self-deprecating and it's slightly serendipitous. It just leads you off into other things. And it, I, I both like that and I like what it stands for because there's other blogs out there that, that are like that. And, and I just love it. There are people who are just sharing their knowledge, not, you know, pointing fingers, fingers and saying, you know, uh, this is how it's got to be. And uh, so there we are. There's, there's a shout out for, for a, a lovely little blog out there. Um, and my third one is a, a podcast. It's a BBC podcast, I think, but it's called The Boring Talks. And I got pointed to the, I don't know where I discovered it, but I think maybe it was a, being broadcast as a radio program, this particular episode. But it was about, um, the first one I heard was about roads that stop in the UK. And, <laughs> you know, have you ever been on a motorway and suddenly it's like the, the end of the M1 just 
stops and you just go off on the left. What was it supposed to be a road? And it turns out there's loads of these and there's a guy investigating them. And this is all part of a series of podcasts about things that are supposedly boring, but actually they're often the most interesting. And of course, I, uh, paradoxically, to be able to present a boring talk, you have to be a really good presenter. So I love that whole notion and that sometimes the most interesting things are in the most unexpected places. Um, and I sort of like to live a bit of that myself, but you've got to be careful because you might sound strange. So, you know, two years ago, our holiday, our summer holiday began with a night in Coventry, not because we were visiting anyone, but because we'd never been to Coventry. <laughs> there are very few other people who would say they spent their first day of their holiday in Coventry in a hotel on the edge of town. We walked through. But I loved it because we discovered this museum, a transport museum there we didn't know about. Philip Larkin, all the old, the little bit of Coventry that didn't, didn't get bombed, all these little, this little street, all this kind of stuff. You know, you can have too much of, uh, of this kind of stuff. But I just love, I love serendipity and I love, I love acknowledging that anything can be interesting. And I, I always hate it. I hate it at school. The people who just say, oh, you've got to like this kind of music and anything else is uncool or boring i like uncool things and uncool people and the boring talks kind of sums that up for me so anyway that's i thought i was it's kind of a a nice one to go off on a tangent wow they're, they're great those we haven't had any of those big three before rob and i'll certainly be checking out um all of those they, they sound absolutely brilliant fantastic well uh, we've, we've reached the end of the show so all that's left for me to do is is to say a big thank you rob and i, I want to thank you for a couple of things um obviously for, for giving up your time today to, to to speak to us i've had an absolutely brilliant time and um, but also um thank you for your writings as i say your books have been very influential they're genuinely there's no word of a lie they're all on my uh, all on my shelf behind where i record these these podcasts and they've, they've been great just for my interest in mathematics as uh, me personally but also then to bring some of these ideas into the classroom to to engage my students to to get them excited as well so they've, they've been fantastic for that um you. you put your puzzles as i said whether you describe yourself as a writer a filter a curator um either way you're you're excellent at it and um i i absolutely love a puzzle again whether it's just me personally doing it or whether it's one that I can get my wife involved or, mm. or uh, yeah, share with the kids. or My yeah. little boy Isaac's maybe a little bit too young, bit young. at the moment, but who knows? Give him another month or so. It'll be, it'll be good to go. And also, just as I mentioned before, you're, um, I, I, these days I'm on a um, secondment from my, from my school this academic year, so I get to work with lots of teachers and travel around. And genuinely, that, that talk I saw you give um, in Liverpool all those years ago now, it was, uh, it was a game changer for me in, in the sense that, I I realise that particularly if I'm there's, there'll be times where I'll be doing four essentially the same talks Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and just the, that simple format of, of mixing things up giving the audience a bit of choice and you then being a bit surprised and being a kind of energized by oh you've gone for that one it's that, that the the energy and the structure you 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 kind of showed on that day i've i've, I've used ever since so That's again I, 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 you've made me think i need to get back and do that <laughs> <laughs> that was good <laughs> no it was super but yeah honestly um thanks thanks for this rob i've, I've enjoyed every minute and it's it's it, i've had a smile on my face throughout this whole conversation so, so thank you very much for that i've enjoyed it thank you So there you have it. There was my interview with esteemed 
I don't know, what would you call him? Polymath, shall we go for that? Rob Easterway. What a great guy. What a fascinating conversation. I really hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Um, I've got loads to take away here. Loads of things that have been whirling around in my head in the days since I, since I spoke to Rob. So, so let's go through them. Um, the first is this general perception of, of mathematics. Well, we spoke about the kind of public view of maths, but... For the day-to-day -day business of many of the teachers listening, it's the, the student perception of mathematics that, that's the most pressing issue. And I love Rob's point there that saying maths is fun is potentially not a good idea. And fun is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and there's no probably better way to stop something being fun than to be told this is going to be fun. Um, and I loved what Rob said about... His aim is to try and make maths normal. It's not just for geeks, not just for nerds, not just for people who absolutely love the sight of pi, just to make enjoying mathematics a normal thing, just as if you'd say, I really enjoyed reading this book or I really enjoyed watching this film. I think that's a really nice uh, nice aim, a nice way of phrasing it. Um, for me, and again, I mentioned this in, in the, in the uh, conversation and I, I regularly come back to this, um, my way of tackling this is first and foremost to make kids feel successful. I believe that success leads to motivation. I don't think it's the other way around. And, and planning for success for me is the top priority. Now, it's interesting. If we, those of you who listened to uh, my previous episode with the authors of The Science of Learning, we talked about how you actually get on this virtuous cycle of success, um, motivation, success, motivation, and so on. Do some students need some external push to get them into that virtuous cycle? And is some, for some students, is that a reward? Whereas for, other, for the others, it's feeling successful and being successful. I don't know. But I think that's, that for me is the long-term solution. Success comes at the, at the heart of enabling students to enjoy maths and have a more positive view of mathematics. Which leads us on to the second thing I wanted to talk about, and that's humour. Um, again, it's a really interesting one there. So Rob makes the point that humour is important, but as, as we also discussed, forced humour is the worst form of humour um, in the world. I just wanted to dive a bit deeper into Rob's post um, on humour, and I, there'll be a link to this in the show notes. But in particularly that, that R, sorry, R, aha, and ha ha. And if my, my northern accent's a bit weird here, R, I'm talking A H, aha, A H A, and then ha ha, H A H A. Now, what that is, it's, uh, and it's summarized beautifully in the post, it's art, discovery, and humor. So it's a moment of ah where you think that is beautiful. That's a beautiful piece of mathematics. That's a beautiful result. Whoa, that's, that's a surprise. I didn't see that coming. And then you've got the aha, the discovery, like, wow, I've got it. There you go, I found that. That makes sense. It's that revelation. It's that seeing an answer, getting an answer correct, spotting a relationship, discovering a pattern. And then it's the haha, it's the humor, it's the smile, the, the finding something funny, the, the kind of break away from the norm and just enjoying yourself. And again, there's two ways to look at this. Um, one is in, in terms of planning. So planning for moments of one of these three in each lesson, the art, the discovery, or humor. Or as Rob says, the retrospective, the looking back on lessons that you've taught over the last week or the last few days. And have, have, has each of them had one of those moments in there? And this shouldn't be some rigid thing. It shouldn't also be some forced thing, as, you, as we've just mentioned. But as a nice way to frame lessons and to reflect on lessons, I think there's some merit in this. And I'd not considered that before, so I really enjoyed that one. Then we talked about parenting. Wow, I didn't see this coming. Um, 
as a, as a maths teacher myself and a parent, there's that danger that I'm going to force my love of maths onto poor little Isaac. And I, I loved Rob's advice there about almost, in, well, yeah, literally inventing another character who can play the role of the, the kind of devious mathematician and it's kind of parent and child against them working together. I thought that was really nice. I'll definitely be trying that one out. And then it was the big focus of the conversation was, was on estimation. Um, and I, I liked that because the, I like what Rob said um, against the classic argument of why do we ever need to bother estimating or do any kind of mental calculations when we've got all this technology to hand. And Rob's point was, well, estimation captures errors. Um, and without a sense of what we expect the answer to be, a ballpark figure, how on earth can we identify that maybe we've made a mistake? So I thought that was really nice. But then the big, big point that Rob makes in his book is that estimation is all well and good, but you need to know the fundamentals to be able to estimate. It's all well and good rounding things to the nearest whole or whatever. If you can't then multiply, add, subtract, or whatever, double or half, then you're in big trouble. So estimation, the power of estimation, the success of estimation is underpinned by the fundamentals of mathematics. So that for me felt felt really important. And the, the thing that neither of us could quite remember, I, I got fairly close, I was a couple of letters out I think, is the QAMA calculator. That's QAMA. If you Google that, you'll be able to find it and I'll place a link in the show notes. That's the one, um, as Rob described, where you type in a calculation but before it gives you the answer, it asks you to do an estimation. And again, and this helps just develop this practice that, that Rob spoke about. Then we had Fermi questions. I love a Fermi question. Um, and here's one for you, I've just thought, for, for podcast listeners, if you wanted to get involved. Um, how many flipping X have been said since the, this podcast first started? And again, you'd need to figure out how many episodes we've done, uh, the average length of these episodes, what's my flipping heck ratio. Is it linear or has, have I gone exponential over time with my use of flipping heck? I don't know. But yeah, Fermi questions are fun, but also potentially useful. And if you've never used one of those in your lessons before, it's worth chucking into the mix. And then finally, Rob dropped that bombshell at the end, didn't he? The how before the why. I didn't see that coming. And this is something that we regularly discuss um, on the podcast. When, if ever, is it appropriate to just show kids how to do something and then delve into why it works at a later date? And I know this divides the audience. I know a lot of people don't agree with me on this. So my challenge to you, uh, lovely loyal listener, is to have a think. Perhaps think of a class first. Get a class in mind. And then try and think of a topic where it definitely makes sense to teach the why first, where you'd explain why a method or procedure works before teaching it them. And what are your reasons for doing that? And then can you flip it the other way around? Can you think of a topic where it definitely makes sense to just show them how first and then start to delve into why it works at a later date? And again, what determines your choice between the two? Um, and I just think it's a worthwhile thought exercise and maybe get a colleague to do the same because again, for, for, as I speak about in my book, for, for 12, 13 years, I just always did the, the why first. It just felt right to me. But again, I had so many experiences in lessons where I was losing kids with these complicated explanations, no matter how many different representations I tried, how many different ways I tried to explain it. So that when we actually came to doing the procedure that was actually relatively straightforward, I'd, I'd lost half the kids. And I've experienced, well, a completely different and more positive experience when I flip things the other way around. So my challenge to you is, well, what's your take on that? And when can you come up with an example where you do, um, in, do it in both orders, if that makes sense? 
Anyway, that brings us to the end of the show. So all that remains for me to do is once again thank Rob for, for giving up his time. As I say, I had an absolute cracking time speaking to Rob. Really easy conversation, just, just smiling all the way through it. Absolutely loved it. And thank you to you, the loyal listeners, for keeping on uh, tuning into this show. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show. Um, if you want to help support the show, the easiest thing you can do is just let people know. Uh, recommend an episode. If it's this one, perhaps. Is this your favourite episode? Recommend that somebody checks that out. Or or choose one of the kind of non-math specific ones to recommend to a non-maths colleague. Um, if you haven't already and you have time to leave a review wherever you get your podcast from, that just makes a world of difference. And if you want to um, support the podcast via Patreon.com, um, go to Patreon.com forward slash Maths. But no pressure whatsoever to do that. I do these for fun not for money. It's all about the love. Anyway, um, thank you once again for tuning in. I will be back with some more cracking guests over the coming weeks and months. But you take care of yourselves and bye for now. <laughs>